0: Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations.
1: We shouldn't be firing weapons into cars to execute warrants, even from people who are fleeing them. Like, as a general thing, this is really bad you policing. Mean, you mean, you mean uh, tasers? Uh, we- uh, firing weapons. Yes. Well, but she thought you like, had taser. a taser. Yeah, taser yeah. is a weapon. Yeah, we shouldn't be firing weapons. We don't fire cars. a taser.
2: That's why I was wondering what you're talking nah,
1: about. You, you shouldn't <laughs> pull the fucking trigger, you pedantic cunt <laughs> on a why weapon. Why are you such an into... asshole, right now, Matt? Can I ask that question? Is there a reason that you're, you're an asshole? You're fucking busting my balls. I'm gonna bust like, your balls like you trying weapon. to figure out you how stupid you the are. About trigger it.
3: on a Good fucking weapon. new methods of attack. The
0: fifth column, column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle of people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I, I usually do a variety of things at Freethink, and I do them at, at levels of exceptionally high quality. I mean, just such high quality, that it's hard to even explain it. Oh, so you're fortunate that I'm here because my talents are very much in demand but i'm also excited to be here with you and i'm excited to be joined by some extraordinary humans and we're gonna we're gonna trash the news cycle and the people uh, oh yeah yeah. matt welch editor at large reason magazine he's he's here on this we're gonna trash matt welch (laughs) yeah we're gonna trash
1: him for sure um as opposed to him trashing himself
0: yeah michael Moynihan, vice news is here he's back from from a, a Sojourn to D.C., I believe, is reporting was on do something, you know, yeah. doing some journalism. I
2: was getting behind the lines of, yeah. uh, at Congress. It, it was did very you, tough. Did yeah. you just say
1: journalism? Yeah. <laughs> you don't like that? Ooh. You don't no, like that? No, I mean, it just feels a bit <laughs> aggressive. It's so. called an innovation. Yeah. Yeah. Was Matt Gase involved? That? <laughs> yeah, <he laughs> exactly. Was. <He>
0: always is. <laughs> <Yeah>. See? <laughs> that voice you're hearing is our guest. It's Alex Narasta, who is our, our guest today. He's going to help us understand immigration <laughs> he is the immigration guy at, at cato director of immigration studies rather and the herbert a pronounce this for me something center for trade policy studies
4: herbert is A. People center
0: i've never heard of Which, this place is this at cato or is this someplace else tell, tell me about this
4: yeah so this is the center inside of cato where we do a lot of our trade research oh. and we recently merged it with immigration and they put me in charge for some reason. So, <laughs>
3: <laughs> so here so, I am.
1: Well, you're, so you're a learned person. Staple was a problem, but Narasta is like, it's totally like easy for you. Well,
0: I, I know Alex, and I, I know his last right. name, so it's much easier. I have some practice with it. Also, it's, it's a thing. Like I mean, it's just it's just chic, Matt Welch. If you don't know, I mean, people don't know that we're we're kind of playing characters here. There's a whole routine. That's
2: all. Well, Steve is so old the American. Uh-huh. Yeah. The Rasta <laughs> is, you
4: know, that's the 21st century new America. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. and I'm up on all that. From products of the future.
0: Alex, you also have a, a new book that people may want to consult on this topic of immigration: wretched refuse? Question mark. Not not a definitive statement that they are all wretched refuse right he's not sure
2: that's right <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah i like to uh, leave yeah, him that I, question mark there
4: <laughs> and it's about the political economy of immigration and institutions so it tries to answer the question of whether immigrants destroy things that libertarians care about like economic freedom political liberty sort of uh liberal cultural norms in the places where they settle so this, it tries to answer important. yeah yeah, what I think is the most potentially powerful criticism of a freer immigration system, which is that it would undermine those things. And our answer is, it doesn't. And yeah. in many cases, it improves it. So why be against it, Libertarian?
0: <laughs> well, I want to, well, I want to unpack all of this. And and fortunate, unfortunately for you, most of the country is not Libertarian. But I also think that your description of what is important to Libertarians, probably what's important to a lot of Americans. So I think there's a lot of important stuff for us to cover there. Um, I think we'll also have some conversations about some other things that are happening in the news cycle. Obviously the immigration crisis is still rather hot. There's been some recent developments on Afghanistan um, in the news recently. Apparently uh, Ukraine and Russia situation is heating up as well. Uh, the Chauvin trial is continuing. The defense council now is laying out their case. So there may be some developments there that are worth discussing. And I imagine a number of other things, oh yeah, Coinbase went public today, which is kind it of did. a big deal in the crypto kind of universe. Yeah, apparently yeah. that company is worth more money than BP the, at one which point is today. Like it was insane yeah. When yeah, when for, it hit for at least four, a little while. The valuation yeah, it went was four hundred thirty kind dollars of a share. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, that was that so, was a little surprising.
0: <laughs> yeah, so that that roller coaster is worth paying some attention to because um, mm-hmm. this is this is a pretty momentous day. The valuation there, um, I was looking at a story in Wall Street Journal it was like sixty five billion. Um, uh, which is a, a substantial increase like based on the this is based on the reference price of 250 dollars per share mm-hmm. and that was an increase from 8 billion dollars back in yeah. 2018 that was the valuation in their last fundraising round it is incredible
2: the reference price is 250 i think it opened at 380 and yeah. and by the way when it's opening at 380 and then it spends most of the day below 380 who do you think is is buying it at three eighty when the bell rings at nine thirty? Like you know, retail investors, and Reg, who's, regular folk,
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: <and> who's who's <laughs> driving it down to three twenty, three ten? Institutional investors. So yeah, everyone got screwed today except for the big guys. So.
0: Yeah. So some important things to discuss there. Um, and, and a, and a number of other things I think that are probably worth devoting some attention to. But gentlemen, I, I think maybe we start with the immigration stuff since we, we do have an expert with us. And Alex, I, I reached out to you because, you know, this has obviously been a, a topic that people have been discussing, um, intensely really since the, the beginning of the Biden administration, but obviously for some time before that. And, I've personally like had a great deal of angst about the issue, not only because of the border crisis, but because as someone who is very much a thoroughgoing libertarian, I am also like roundly in favor of open borders. Like I'll say it plainly. Like, I think people who are, who are peaceful, who are interested in coming to this country to work, like we should make it possible for them to get here with like minimal difficulty law-abiding good honest people who want to help build the country and make it better ought to be able to come here but most people don't necessarily share that perspective for a variety of reasons and navigating all of that is really important but there are also some objections i think as you indicated that even people who are inclined towards libertarian ideals may raise with this and then we've got this other complicated situation on the southern border that has been unfolding since like what, 2017, 2018, with these waves of migrants uh, that have been coming. And this is a problem that's continued to balloon. I wonder if you could just kind of give us some context to start this conversation out. Like where, where do things stand and how the hell did we get here?
4: So I'd even go back to 2014, Okay. Uh, that's when the really first big crisis of like unaccompanied children started to arrive at the border in big numbers. And what happened there was because the Mexican government liberalized its laws. So people from Central America could come up a lot easier. They took the train called the Beast. Uh, that's the nickname of it, the Bestia, coming up to the border And under American laws, unaccompanied alien children can be allowed in and then they're connected with sponsors once they're here in the U.S. Oftentimes they're family members who are frequently illegal immigrants, too, but oftentimes like foster care. And then that was caught when the Mexicans sort of cracked down on people taking the train. And then in 2018, 2019, it happened again. Illegal immigrants were coming up uh, using uh, smugglers and buses primarily, chartering whole buses from Central America up to the border. And then the Mexican government cracked down on that after Trump threatened them significantly to do so. And then recently, what we are seeing is um, since basically April 2020, it's been a building level of people coming across the border, about one third of them Mexicans, about 36% Mexicans, but also a lot of unaccompanied children, family units, but the most of them single adults trying to come in, some of them flying up by airplane from Central America, which is like a new development in the whole smuggling route issue. And the same problem with American laws, which is we allow kids in, but under current rules put in place by Trump, we force basically everyone else across the border immediately. So it's a really perverse incentive where we've basically told families, oh, yeah, your kids can come in if they're alone, but if they come in with the family, we push most of them across the border back. So the only way to get your kid in is to separate them and then you try to sneak in illegally and then hook up with them later. So it's this real like complicated, messy situation, basically as a result of the fact that there's really no legal way for these people to come here in the first place.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the change in the asylum processing under Trump? and even the legality of it, because I think it was a bit contested. From what I understand, you could knock on the door and say, I'm uh, applying for asylum because I'm persecuted at home. There's some terrible thing happening at home. And you would be able to knock on the door, they'd open the door, and then they'd sort of put you in that room over there. Um, Correct me where I'm wrong. But the Trump change was that, oh, sorry, doors closed. You've got to, like, go that way now. And that hadn't been done before. And this sort of like changed the the flow and the pressures and the bubbles.
3: And, yeah, and maybe, right.
0: can, I, can I complicate this task for you? Just, as, you're, as you're doing <laughs> Do that- Do I have a think, choice? Maybe. <laughs> you could tell me that this is too hard, in which case don't try to make this turn. I think Matt's question is great. I'm wondering if as you're answering the question about Trump's changes, you could kind of lay out What you mean when you say there is no process for these people to come in here because it's something that we've said a number of times that the whole immigration system is kind of busted maybe you could give us a sense of what the shape of that thing looks like and how the trump administration changed it because someone might say well they they why didn't wouldn't they fix whatever the hell is wrong um but what is their idea of fixing it and what are they trying to accomplish
4: yeah so i'll start with that and then go to matt's issue um there are basically two ways to come to the U.S. One is, you know, if you're a migrant, one is on a green card, which would allow you to stay permanently and eventually become a citizen. The other way is on this temporary guest worker visa program where you work for less than a year, you go back and you go back to your home country, and you can come back again. There's basically no green cards for unskilled workers to come to the United States. It doesn't really exist. There are a few thousand here and there, but it's basically there's no way to do it. That leaves these temporary guest worker visas. And the ways that these works is it's basically just for Mexicans. The way that they're designed, the way that they're run, basically only Mexicans can get these temporary visas to work in the United States. So that means Central Americans who are showing up at the border in enormous numbers have basically no way to come into this country legally. Now, the thing that they found, and this is transferring transitioning to Matt's question, is one of the ways to get in is through asylum. So the way that it used to work is you knock on the door – say i have a well-founded fear of persecution if you send me back to my home country the u.s would let you in they'd hear your case in the meantime you could work now what happened is all these people from central america who are paying 10 20 30 thousand dollars and from around the world paying more to come to the u.s border they wanted a guarantee from smugglers they're like why am i going to pay you as much money as i could make in 20 years in my home country if there's no guarantee to get in so the smugglers figured out you asked for asylum you can get in and then you can disappear inside the United States. So once they figured that out, all of a sudden the smuggler route sort of exploded as a way to try to knock and get in. And Trump sort of you know, figuring out that a lot of these asylum cases, not all, but a lot of them are sort of fraudulent, a way to get into the U.S. first illegally to, to disappear, um, sort of shut that down in 2018, and 2019, said like you can't knock on the door anymore to come in in violation of the statute as it's written. But, you know, Trump does lots of things on immigration. Every president does. Nobody stops him. So what happened was there's another provision of immigration law that says if you ask for asylum on U.S. soil, no matter how you got here, then they have to hear your claim. So the unanticipated consequence of Trump closing the asylum door was that people just came in illegally, asked for asylum that way. Hmm. They still got in. And that's basically the same mess that we're at now. So the border is still closed in that sense. We still are not allowing asylum seekers to go up to the door and knock.
2: But didn't, didn't Biden, via executive order, uh, reverse the, the remain in Mexico policy?
4: Yeah. So this was a policy that said under, under Trump, OK, if we catch you coming in, then you apply for asylum, but you have to wait in Mexico which is this sort of weird thing where it's like you're fleeing a country, you got to wait on a foreign country, but they're not waiting Mm -hmm. in the foreign countries they fled from. Right. So that was, um, and, and there are 1.3 million cases backlogged in the immigration system. Right. So (laughs) yeah, it's sort of like, you know, waiting in line for bread in the Soviet union. It's like a joke and, or maybe it's worse than that. Right. It's maybe, maybe for shoes, waiting for shoes. So you have to wait in line for an enormous amount of time to hear your case in a refugee camp in Mexico. And Trump, uh, Biden has reversed some of that. He is letting some of those folks in if they apply for asylum in the past. But it seems to be a really haphazard and confused way in which he's doing it. There's really not much reason or organization or logic to it.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that has really struck me, especially with respect to how the border crisis has has expanded, and I th- I do think it's fair to call it a border crisis. We've talked about this a little bit. I think when Trump was in office, there was a time there where most of the press was interested in, in sort of talking about this as though it, it were a completely manufactured issue. But I think it's it's very fair to call it that in terms of just the detention centers that have had to be built or the these facilities that are there that have had to be used to both house families and unaccompanied minors and, you know, individuals who are trying to cross the border in conditions that are oftentimes like very hard to stomach. But these conditions, as we know, like Obama administration had to deal with them. The Trump administration has had to deal with them, and now the Biden administration has had to deal with them. And what struck me is the degree to which, everyone involved in the conversation nationally, like from, you know, Ted Cruz to AOC to the the Biden administration itself and its various apparatchiks, they all have a number of things to say about this. And in some instances are trying to pull it in your heartstrings, talking about the heartbreaking tragedy. I think that's Ted Cruz back uh, a couple of weeks ago and AOC who, you know, in 2019, 2018, Teen was like weeping at the fence, um, talking about these detention facilities and and suggesting that she was going to dismantle them, but none of the changes happen ever, and what you're describing, alex, like this process that doesn't exist it, it effectively makes immigration legal immigration from this region of the world impossible, <laughs> and the demand doesn't drop to zero, so you get a black market with all of the ugly. Things that go along with it, and fixing immigration from an American perspective is building walls and Byzantine bureaucratic tweaks that create long wait lists and make it seemingly more impossible
4: and that and that isn 't going to change i mean the the economic gains for a migrant from Central America is a six to seven fold increase in income, adjusting for the cost of living right that is like a wow. gain in income. That, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I've never had a job, you know, from one job to the other where it's like a six-fold increase in income. <laughs> um, th- yeah. It's like almost difficult to to imagine that kind of pressure. But they're not allowed to come lawfully. And we can do lots of cra- – the government can do lots of crazy things to try to stop them, and they do. They build walls. Um, they hold immigrants in detention facilities. They try you know, uh, domestic – uh, identity systems to try to keep them out of jobs like you verify, they do deportations, they try to scare them they try to get these corrupt governments money to enforce our laws for them. But the fact of the matter is like you, know, you got small kids and you're poor and you know if you just walk uh, 1200 miles or pay a smuggler that you could live in like unimaginable luxury compared to what you're in, a lot of people are going to try that and they want to follow the rules they want to do things legally like um, Jack Herrera, who's a good writer, Uh, a reporter for Politico, wrote this story about people in these camps in Mexico waiting on the border saying, like, we want to cross legally. We want to follow the rules. But nobody tells us what the rules are. Trump Mm -hmm. didn't. Biden didn't. Nobody did. Um, And so they said, like, you know, every day the offers of the smugglers who come by the camps every day are looking better and better. And it's just a matter of time before they try. It's the same story with every black market, I think. It's just. Much more tragic here in a lot of ways. You know,
2: one of the things that it strikes me is that, and, and you know, you know these poll numbers back to front, Alex, and one of the frustrating things about looking at polls when it comes to immigration is they seem to reflect the biases of the pollsters and of people reporting on them so often. I don't know, can make heads or tails out of most of them. But, you know, the, Biden's recent moves in immigration seem to be widely unpopular. Is that why, and again, this is something that you have to kind of speculate on, is that why we don't get solutions to this stuff? Because the issue is not a terribly popular one amongst a lot of voters, I mean, particularly Republicans. I mean, Republicans, the latest polling that I saw, are kind of rocked-ribbed Trumpian types when it comes to restrictionists, when it comes to immigration. But it seems that Democrats are very similar, too. And particularly when when I was down on the border um, about a month ago, And those districts down there that are represented by Hispanic Democrats who have far tougher, you know, rhetoric on immigration than any other Democrats that I've heard talking about it.
4: I think I think you kind of hit on it. It's when there's a process or something going on that's chaotic. People just hate that thing that they think is causing it. Right. I think if you're talking about the war on drugs, uh, you know, and the associated crime. You know, we know it's from the illegality, but people, I think, see that violence and chaos with drugs. They see with immigration along the border and Mm -hmm. they reflexively become against those things. Right. And all of a sudden our arguments about liberalization, about loosening things up, about how, now that's caused by the government restricting these things, that just doesn't work very well. So you compare this and there's a lot of good papers on this, academic uh, political psychology papers. It's called the Locust of Control perceptions of chaos and perceptions of control. So if people have a perception that the government has control over immigration and if they perceive it's not chaotic and they perceive that they have some kind of say over it through their elected officials, then they like immigration and they support a lot more <laughs> of it. So, hmm. and, and some of the best evidence of this comes from like a comparison of the U.S., Canada, and Australia, right? Like only one of these countries borders a developing nation. Only one of them has a land border that there is widely perceived people can cross illegally and one of them has an ultra restrictive immigration system, and that's the United states and There's really suggestive polling from places like Australia where when they have problems with people landing on their shores as asylum seekers from Afghanistan or Bangladesh or elsewhere or Burma uh, support for legal immigration in Australia plummets because people see it as chaotic and uncontrolled so ironically, like Australia's horribly inhumane immigration detention facilities where Migrants commit suicide on these islands because they're there for years waiting to get into Australia on these claims is actually the thing that allows the Australian public to support a more liberal and open immigration system than just about any other developed country because the perception is the government has control. Hmm. So I think so I think that's what you hit on. Right. Like you have these Hispanic congressmen down the border. Right. And and there are people running through their backyards and the backyards of their neighbors are like, we can't have this.
2: This is literally what everyone said to me and most of the people that I spoke to. I mean, I didn't speak to I was in Star County where there are no white people. It actually is the lowest percentage of white people in the country. It's a 97% Hispanic. And that was the language used by everyone, particularly the backyard, running through the backyard. I don't want to go out and see, you know, a bunch of people coming through my backyard every day. And it, you know, complicates the very, very simple narrative that we have, you know, in the media and way away from the border that there is kind of a uniform idea amongst quote unquote Hispanics who are very, Mm. you know, vast, disparate, uh group of people with different opinions. And everyone there was like, no, 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 we can't, we can't have this. We how long the, the swing toward towards Trump was very uh easily explained. I mean of course he didn't win Star County, but and it's it's you know eighteen, nineteen thousand people voted there. But it was a much narrower victory for the Democrat this time around.
0: How long ago were you there again, Moynihan? And could you give folks some context for for why you were there? Because some of them may not remember. Well,
2: it was about three weeks ago, I guess. And, you know, we went to Texas for part of a piece that we're doing about the future of the Republican Party. And one of the issues uh, we were dealing with was immigration. And, of course, things were kind of kicking off at the border. And we went down there and we saw what we kind of expected to see, which was, you know, exhausted Border Patrol. Uh, Operation Lone Star was really kicking in. And when we were driving through Star County... Every 20 feet, there was a uh, state police car just, you know, stopping people. And it was a really weird thing. We were stopped, I think, four or five times in one day because we were driving a huge white van. And the second, and it was funny, the first time we got stopped, the officer the, was a, a Hispanic officer and came up. We rolled down the window, he saw us, and he said, have a good day. Didn't ask us a single question. He saw a bunch of mm-hmm. white people in a van, and one of my guys had a camera, and they were like, have a good day. And it was, it was like, you know, they were ramping it up in a very, very aggressive way, and it was right at the sort of middle of this when people uh, in a very partisan way, Republicans were kind of overcooking a lot of things. Then Democrats were saying, can you believe this hideous language they're using of a crisis? It's not a crisis. And I was sitting there going, well, I don't know what this is. And I don't want to get into a, a debate about sort of definitional debate, but it seems pretty bad. And most of the people that I spoke to, I mean, almost without exception, were were of, of the mind that, you know, nothing specific, but something must be done this evening is very bad. And a lot of people were pointing out that there were people like one woman told me that uh, her husband, who is a Mexican immigrant, they own a shop and he came out. This is in Starr County. And there were two people there. One of them handed a telephone to him and he started speaking Spanish to them. And they were just like, what? And gave him a, a, a telephone. And they were from, I think, from Bangladesh. Uh, coming via the the border now obviously Alice can tell us about this. It seems like you know there were two uh, people that were on no fly lists that were stopped recently, and people have been a little he- heavy breathing about that. but there are people from other places too, particularly. Cubans, which I find pretty interesting that, you know, at the end of wet foot, dry foot policy, they're coming up through Mexico. But it, is, it was a pretty varied group. And that actually frightened. The woman told me that like, that was really frightening to her husband. She was like, who is this guy? He doesn't even speak Spanish. Who are these people coming? <laughs> and it
4: was like the kind of implication or was that like he non- thought they were Qaeda or
2: something, you know.
4: From 2007 to 2019, about 1.5 percent or so of the people apprehended on the southern border were not from Mexico or Central America, but from what are called um, SIA countries, which are special interest alien countries, which Hmm. are those that the government has put on a list that says these countries are more of a risk of terrorism. Um, It includes countries like India, for instance. So it's not, like, particularly special to get on that list, and it encompasses around, like, a quarter of the world's population, more than a quarter, uh, more like a third, probably, doing the math in my head. So... um, Yemenis these two Yemeni guys who were supposedly on the terror watch list so there was like a dozen terrorist lists some are serious you know probably known as suspected terrorists who are serious criminals they were on the list the terror watch list that has about 1.3 to 1.8 million people on it and it's basically like somebody says that they heard somebody say this person was, uh, knew some terrorists hmm. and a lot of it is not biometrics but uh names and places now i don't know if you know much about like the muslim world but every other person is named muhammad
3: mm-hmm.
4: and um like uh, you know every other <laughs> man anyway like I, i've done i've done these lists of terrorists right and there are people that's like muhammad ali muhammad muhammad mm-hmm. muhammad 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 was one of them actually um
3: <laughs> is that actually so, true that actually a,
4: yeah. a,
2: Really? Triple bomb! Oh my god, that yeah, guy a, loves the prophet so much. I, I, I think I know
3: that guy, <laughs> actually. Yeah, I,
4: I don't think they were spelled through different ways. But yeah. but you can understand like the problem, right? Of like identifying people from a non Roman alphabet, a country with a non-Roman alphabet, transliterating that name into English. And then all we have is names and like locations to go on and oftentimes no biometrics. So that person, those people, if it turns out that it wasn't positively identified as them and they just thought it was. Like We'll never know what they say, but they usually apprehend like six to 12 people on the terror watch list trying to enter the United States every year, a handful of them along the border. Not a single person on the terror watch list has ever committed an attack on U.S. soil. No terrorist has ever crossed (laughs) the U.S. border with Mexico unlawfully and committed an attack in the United States, or even been uh, accused of planning to commit an attack in the a United terror- States. A terrorist, a terrorist attack. attack.
1: I mean, some of them have attacked human beings. But <laughs> yeah, but not, not a terrorist,
4: terrorist attack? attack. I mean, the, the closest just, thing you can get. That just means
1: that the
0: list is working, Alex. That's what it means. Like, <laughs> It really true. is one of those things where it could be either thing, right? <laughs> yeah. It's possible that the list is really working great or yeah. the list is dog shit. Yeah. <laughs>
4: and
3: it doesn't yeah. so <laughs> <it isn't>
4: help <laughs> So the best example that I found are these three guys. Um, they are all brothers. Uh, last name Duka. They were ethnic Albanians from Macedonia. They crossed. Guilty. Yeah, get them rid.
2: yeah. Matt becomes a restrictionist in one. On. one. I know area.
1: those people. Their His name was Bush Game and Summit. I know those
4: dudes. Food is terrible. They, um, so they crossed in 1984. I think they were four or five years old. 23 years later, they were accused of planning an attack on Fort Dix and arrested. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was one of these, like, comic plots, right, where it was like, oh, yeah, we're going to roll in in our Toyota Prius, Mm -hmm. and we're going to burst through those (laughs) gates, and we're going to take down Fort Dix in a hail of jihadist glory. Mm -hmm. It was like one of those dumb plots, right? But uh, that's basically, like, the closest you can come. On the U.S.-Mexico border, to a serious plot was won 23 years in the making, mm. started by 5 year old uh, but, 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 but Alex, is it is They're it called not, sleeper cells? That's yeah. what it is. <laughs> napping, like Rugrats sleeper
2: cells. Yeah. <laughs> but is it? Is it? I mean, could you make the argument in a in a way? I mean, I agree with you on this, but could you? I mean, it is when I mentioned the. Uh, I think I said no fly list. I meant terror watch list is this is obviously seized upon by everybody. There's no nuance to it. And people, like, they start shaking in their boots and say, this is why we need a bigger wall and, you know, more Border Patrol, etc. They apprehend a lot of people. I mean, how many have been apprehended so far this year? Like uh,
4: 569,000 through the end of March. So 569,000
2: hmm. in the, fiscal year. In the fixed, yeah. wow. fiscal year have been apprehended. Is it I mean, in, in some way, it's not a really great way to come into the country because almost everybody gets apprehended. I mean, you see the mm. technology, but well, a lot of people do. I mean, particularly yeah. when the Rio Grande, I mean, you you, they, I mean, they have like imaging and they're seeing all this stuff happening. The people that I talked to were basically saying that it's really, really hard to get across the border without us knowing about it.
4: Yeah. So so one thing about that, that 569,000, those are the number of apprehensions. Yeah. So a lot of those are people who have been apprehended multiple times.
0: Double and triple counted.
4: Yeah. So if you take estimates of recidivism, yeah, the numbers are probably 40% lower than that. Um, so, but that's no, no, you're but still it, talking for, about law Yeah, of people, for right? me, i just,
2: it's yeah. they're apprehending. Yeah. I mean, it's like yeah. they're getting yeah. caught three times is, is, you know, impressive, uh, in a way that it's, <laughs> it, I mean, I just think that people have this sense that the border is incredibly porous and everybody can just kind of wiggle in. And I think in some places along the border, I mean, Alice you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, that is truer than other places. But in, in Texas and the Rio Grande Valley, it seemed like it was, it was pretty tough to get across without, Alerting somebody, you know, and that, it, that people were particularly when they were beefing up and doing this Operation Lone Star, which was really calling in the cavalry from all over the state.
4: Yeah. And, and a good measure of that is the smuggling prices to get across the border. So in 1990, mm. the smuggling prices were about 800 bucks across the border. And then that's around the time they started to really increase enforcement, which was after the Reagan amnesty. And, uh, up until now, the prices are closer to $10,000, uh, to get across the border. So like that last Man. sort of leg. And I think that's the, you know, using putting on my econ hat, that's probably, you know, price is a measure of scarcity in the supply and demand, right? So it's, it's a really difficult and expensive way to do it. Uh, but the thing is, one of the rules that Trump put in place that Biden has kept in place is called Title 42. And this is a pandemic power that allows, Anybody apprehended on the southwest border or anywhere, really, the government can just push them back over Mexico, like almost immediately. So we don't charge them with the misdemeanor offense of crossing the border illegally. They don't get held at detention facilities for very long. They don't pay that price for coming illegally. We just push them back, which means that they can try sometimes two or three times in the same day to cross, and they're actually more likely to get in under these policies huh. so because it lowers the opportunity cost of trying to come across. And so this is why, And, and my think, is like the number of Mexicans coming across has skyrocketed um, since April of 2020 when this Title 42 was put in place. And Mexican apprehensions had been declining for like I, almost 20 years prior to that. And now they skyrocket because all of a sudden we lowered the punishment for Mexicans being able to come in. Uh, illegally. And you know, the libertarian in me is like, oh well, it's a victimless crime and offence, so, you know, that's probably a good thing. But then the bad side is it creates a whole ton of chaos and craziness on the border where people are uh, you know crossing the desert and being abused by smugglers and the government in all different types of ways. So it's it's really a disaster.
1: You've mentioned supply and demand a couple of times, and I wanted to get a, a, a picture of it because uh, I think it's really interesting, your frame, about how people respond to the sort of visual or visceral sense of chaos around them, and they don't like it. They feel unsettled. It's like when pigeons are flying at me on the sidewalk, I know they're going to peck <laughs> out my ears. Uh, they're coming after me. So it's well known. You and your uh, ears. totally true. I know. It's just. It's just facts. Is Um, that why
4: you carry hot dogs in your pocket to distract (laughs) them? Thank you
1: for understanding my pain. Um, But uh, can you give us a global sense? Because there's so many things that people uh, commonly say and think about immigration that just are not true um, uh, about, you know, the level of criminality or the level of sucking off the welfare teat and this and that. But can you just give us a global sense uh, or like correct me where I am wrong? Generally speaking, last five, ten years. About a million people come a year, about 100,000 of them are refugees, um, and that those numbers are kind of were similar or the same throughout the uh, uh, Trump administration, except the 100,000 went to 10,000 or t- or 20,000 uh, because you really squeezed down the refugees, a uh, process by which is still going on in the Biden administration now. He hasn't changed that as far as I know. But also that some of the, the Trumpian effect on legal immigration only went into place in in the last year or so of his presidency and will perhaps live much longer. So like the, the Trumpian effects we will see under Biden it, or like explain how that might happen with those numbers and correct them where they're wrong.
4: Yeah. So I think the the general sense of the numbers you said were correct. I mean, Trump really didn't have much of an effect on the number of legal immigrants coming in until March, 2020. Now there That's are some, amazing. yeah, it, it is. It is truly amazing. Right. So, so some student visas went down. That happened. Um, the number of refugees coming in went down. number of asylum seekers went down. But the number of all these other visas, H-2A visa for temporary agricultural workers, continued to go up. H-2B hmm. visa for non-agricultural temporary workers continued to go up. These things continue to climb. Uh, but what happened was the pandemic uh, – well, a couple of things happened. One, this horrible Supreme Court decision called Trump v. Hawaii in 2018 – which was a Supreme Court decision about Trump's Muslim ban on terrorists. And um, the way that the government argued this case was, of course, the president can ban people. He can do it for any reason he wants. This law says he can, and he doesn't have to show anybody any work that says that it's you know accomplishing the goal that he wants. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, that sounds totally consistent with our constitutional principles. Of course, the president has this power to do this. And so at the time, my colleague David Beer and I were saying, well, there's no limiting principle here. The president can just stop whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And that is exactly what he did in March and April of 2020. In response, and this is what he said, in response to the economic devastation caused by the pandemic, he's going to stop issuing green cards to people abroad and Hmm. stop issuing visas to people abroad, with the exception of some agricultural workers from Mexico. So what you saw in um, sort of that last half of uh, 2020 compared to the last half of 2016 was a 91% decline in the numbers of green cards issued to people abroad and a 93% decline in the number of temporary visas issued to people abroad. There has never been a decline that rapid and that vast at any point in U.S. history that quickly. I mean, not in the 1920s when they passed the anti-immigration laws, not in the Great Depression, not in World War One or World War II have we seen a decline as fast and across the board as we saw there. And the thing is, like, if COVID didn't happen, you know, the tr- Trump would be like a temporary blip on immigration and these numbers. But COVID gave him basically the excuse to end legal immigration to the United States. And the problem is restarting it. Biden has started the process of restarting it. But the thing that needs to happen is the embassies overseas need to reopen to start processing the first stage of these visas. And they were all shut down. A lot of these people fired. The contractors let go. They need to find these people and rehire them to start the process of admitting these people. So even though Biden restarted it, it could be months to years before we start admitting uh, a lot of these folks on green cards and other visas from abroad. I mean, it's it's really a disaster.
0: There are two categories of critiques of the kind of liberal immigration policy perspective uh, that I, I think it's important that we tangle with because they've both been alluded to. And certainly the, the last uh, response that you just gave, Alex, invokes one of them, which is just this biased against Low skilled immigration that is baked into our immigration policy. And that I think is pretty widespread with respect to both conservatives and rank and file Democrats. It may not be kind of in the national policy, but it is certainly true in many respects that most people believe that low skilled immigration to this country at certain levels is going to be a destructive force and it's going to somehow be a sap on the US economy. And it's even true that some really thoughtful libertarians, people like Milton Friedman, who I'm very fond of, have had some skepticism about low-skilled immigration in the context of a welfare state, Um, and perhaps even in the context of the kind of country that we have, which I don't think it's fair to describe it as a welfare state, but it is certainly the case that there are a number of entitlements and transfers that take place. And there are significant questions, and I think there's both kind of a sensibleness to how people arrive at this conclusion and perhaps a reality where we can at least look at the data that we have already to get some sense as to whether or not this is a legitimate concern in terms of people coming into the country illegally and or or even legally and like just kind of living off of the the teat of the state is that a concern And, and i'll tease the second thing which is tucker carlson has fairly recently uh said some rather controversial things um about uh replacement and I didn't say replacement theory but about replacement which have been interpreted in a particular way but he's suggested that people who want sort of a more liberal immigration policy and I'm using liberal to suggest more like generous not liberal as in the liberal politics uh policy are pursuing a a policy to empower democrats through demographic change, and I think it's important to address both of those things. So I'm I'm throwing that out there, Alex. I, I'll give you a first crack at it, but I imagine there are many thoughts on this in general.
4: So on the Will Milton Friedman point, everybody remembers that first part of that quote, right, where he mm-hmm. says you can't have open borders in a welfare state. They don't remember the second part where he says, and that's why I support illegal immigration. Because they don't have access to welfare, <laughs> so like you know, the, the Heritage Foundation wrote this piece critical of some work that I did some years ago. They led with that Milton Friedman quote, and my response is, "Why don't you include the second part? Heritage, is there something you don't like about illegal immigration?" Uh, so I mean, that's the that's the point there. But when we take a look at like per capita welfare use of all benefits, entitlement benefits, as well as means tested welfare benefits immigrants on a per capita basis use 21% fewer benefits than native-born Americans as a dollar value. Um, Does that
1: include schools and emergency room healthcare?
4: No, it includes, no, it doesn't. It includes emergency Medicaid, which counts for a lot of the hospital usage, but not all of it. So this is just like the entitlement system. Now, when you take a look at the school's uh, that's a little bit different uh, sort of nut to crack. Uh, part of it is that kids who are you know, English second language cost about twice as much or so to teach until they learn English. Hmm. Um, and that is a higher cost. Of course, the whole point of education, I guess, uh, I get the theory anyway. Um, <laughs> if I can remember right from school, me not think so good. But I think the, uh, the theory is that uh, you're supposed to educate them <laughs> and uh then they uh, will have higher earning potential later in life and pay enough taxes to, you know, hopefully, you know, pay, you know, make up for that. So, you know, the public education system is a mess. But when you take a look at sort of the entire fiscal effects, and these have been estimated by numerous groups, uh, academic papers, National Academy of Sciences, others, the general finding is that immigrants basically pay their way and that there are small errors on different sides. Sometimes it's a little positive. Sometimes it's a little negative. But it's really not that much.
1: Um, for the country, not necessarily for this little town in Texas yeah. or on the California border.
4: Yeah. So you know, uh, San Diego County um, in California might have a very negative impact, uh, but Texas—I mean, the Texas Comptroller of the currency um, or the Texas—sorry, the Texas comptroller—they don't have a currency, but their Texas comptroller <laughs> not has yet. This, not yet. <laughs> well, you know, we can hope. Uh, I bet Ellen
2: West has his own currency.
4: <laughs> Ooh. That, Albucks <laughs> Albucks That's good I'm starting this that tonight That's my crypto
2: Alcoin Al oh, i no. got I'll
4: go public At 10 billion But uh what, what they've looked at is because Texas doesn't have a progressive income tax to fund itself, it basically gets funded off of um, sales taxes, excise taxes of various kind, user fees and property tax. Nobody. it's basically like a flat tax or slightly regressive tax system. So poorer immigrants actually end up paying a lot. So the Texas comptroller estimates that illegal immigrants increase the budget surplus in Texas by around half a billion dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Um, well, meanwhile, in California, they do probably draw down more benefits than they pay, but that's partly because California's tax system relies almost entirely on high progressive income taxes and capital gains taxes that overwhelmingly tax the wealthier and more productive people of which you know illegal immigrants are, are not. So there's some you know there's some truth to some of the welfare stuff and it could be really bad if the welfare state policies were changed but you know illegal immigrants, don't have access to most means-tested welfare programs when they come in. Most legal immigrants don't have access to those things legally. And the types of people who decide to come in aren't coming here so that they can you know, live on food stamps. Uh, they're coming here to make a lot of money so that they can send home you know, to their folks and because they're, you know, they're more ambitious. I, I
2: mean, that's exactly what I noticed in doing uh, a couple, three or four um, pieces uh, reporting on immigration in Europe, particularly after, after the crisis in 2015, was that when you talk to the average person about immigration— they know, because Europe is a kind of different political culture, that one doesn't come out swinging against immigrants. You just don't say it. You always, always talk about health care. Every single person I talked to said, you know, the hospitals in Vienna and this is the same thing in Sweden. They're saying they're clogging up the system. And, you know, it's obviously very different in Europe, where access to that stuff is obviously far more generous and far easier for um, people who are not documented to make use of. To Camille's point, Camille made a, made a point about uh, Democrats and how Democrats feel about this stuff. I think there's been a shift in this, and I wanted to get your opinion on this, Alex. I mean, in the past, you had somebody like Bernie Sanders, who would be sort of Broadly opposed to illegal immigration because it depresses working class wages was what he says, and now as the kind of political winds have shifted, and there's a lot more about identity and about race, mm. and of course, uh, AOC saying that uh, illegal Im- immigration people would talk about it as an invasion. Somebody actually, uh, two people said that to me, both were Mexican American, is ha- is a white supremacist idea. This was like literally two or three weeks ago, and so it's, it's it has that kind of tinge of of talking in the in the way that one talks these days about that kind of, you know, culture war stuff, whereas the class stuff seems to have been subsumed by this now. So my question in a way is, I, you know, I remember, I think it was, what was it, George Borjas was the guy at uh, Harvard, the uh, immigration economist, cited kind of erroneously cited by Trump and cited by people on both sides. And I seem to recall that his argument is somewhere in the middle, that you know immigration can be a net positive uh, for the country economically, but it does have a downward effect on wages in certain communities. Is it one or the other? I mean, I know I hear both sides of this. Everybody has a friggin study to cite, and I'm not as, as smart as you are, Alex, and I can't disaggregate which ones are accurate, which ones aren't. But is it true in any sense? that working class wages are depressed by more illegal immigration.
4: So I'll go with the Borjas study that you mentioned uh, as sort of my baseline. What Borjas found was that immigration from 1990 to 2010 lowered the relative wages of American high school dropouts by about 1.7%. Now, by lower the relative wages, which is the only way these regressions in his model work, what it means is those wages are 1.7% lower compared to other Americans by other education levels. So it's not an absolute decline in wages that immigrants have done, but they've caused the wages for high school dropout Americans to grow more slowly and the wages for other groups of Americans by education to grow a little bit faster. So even he doesn't find an actual decline in wages, what he finds is sort of this relative Decline, which gets lost, of course, in the media debate over this stuff, because econometrics is, you know, <laughs> gruelingly difficult and boring as hell. So, like, <laughs> that's that, that's basically what you find. So, there's no sense that is reported by by Borjas or others in which immigration lowers directly the wages of like large groups of Americans. Now, there are some. There's a lot of good evidence. I would say, like meatpacking plants and janitors. So, you can look like by occupation the wages of these groups like have almost undoubtedly declined and they've declined in real terms due to immigration. So like wages for e packing plant workers are down about fifty percent in real terms from what they were wow. in nineteen eighty. And yeah, it kind of blew me away when I found that. Uh, and that's almost guaranteed to be due to immigration.
2: Yeah, but- and Borjas does mention in the piece that he actually wrote about this around the time that Trump was using his stuff, he did actually use an example of a place. I came somewhere in the south, I think, which is a meatpacking plant raided by immigration. Seventy five percent of its employees were all of a sudden disappeared. They reposted those jobs at higher wages. And that was an example, like a sort of micro example that he said, you know, these things can happen. And, uh, you know, it's funny that you say that because it was the, the example he used was meatpacking.
4: And and the funny thing is, somebody actually followed up on that like six months later, and it was all illegal immigrants again working there. So it's like Mm. you you can try to. It's sort of like the war on drugs logic, right? Like if the government gets really smart about it and actually uncovers a lot of drugs, well, the price goes up, and then all of a sudden cartels have more of an incentive to innovate uh, because the price is up. And this is the same thing with sort of immigrants in in, in the labor market, like this. So, but Mm -hmm. but even but even Borjas will admit, and, and he doesn't shy away from it, is that immigration does overall increase the wages
3: mm-hmm. of
4: native-born American workers um, and increases them for some more than others, undoubtedly. But the the people who are actually are hurt the most by new immigrants are immigrants who came in in the past, who are now competing <laughs> with them because they're the most similar. So when you take a look <laughs> at those, like the relative wage declines are so large. They're like sometimes... Seven, eight, nine percent. And some people have looked at the real wages and there are a lot of times they are basically flat over long periods of time because the new immigrants who are the most are the most similar to the older immigrants. Right. In terms of where they live, their skills, their experiences, etc. Uh, those are also the people who are most pro-immigration. So mm-hmm. going back to Camille's point about, uh, you know, politics and how immigrants vote. You know, taking a look at the General Social Survey, which is the largest biennial survey in the United States, and it asks about political opinions and everything. The biggest difference in political opinions between immigrants who are citizens and native born Americans is on the issue of immigration. Hmm. Far and away, the biggest difference in any issue. Immigrants are much more pro immigration than natives are. Um, on most other issues, the differences are statistically insignificant.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um you can't measure it. Um, but for that one, that's where the widest gap is. A few other ones that aren't good, you know, immigrants don't like marijuana. They don't like the Mary Jane. Um, and they're a little <laughs> bit more socially conservative on some other ways. They're uh, just
1: saying that they don't want La Migra to come after them. That's it. They, just,
4: yeah, they, they want all the touch for themselves. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. but, but uh, that's, so, so. It's sort of this myth, I think, where people think that immigrants are basically all a bunch of communists coming here to vote for the Socialist Party and take away our private property. Um, I think a lot of the reason why they do mostly vote for the Democrats – and they have, by the way, as far as we can tell, back until about 1798 when the Federalist Party uh, blamed immigrants for all their problems and the nascent Democratic-Republican Party, which became the Democratic Party, said, no, immigrants are great. And that's basically been the way it's been – since like 1798 is whatever party is on the right, whether it's the Federalists or the Whigs or the Republicans, are pretty opposed to immigration. And then the party on the opposite side is pretty supportive. And that seems to be how the uh, immigrants vote because they like the party that, you know, likes them.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I love the, the point that you raised. Uh, and I think we have raised it a few times. So I'm going to just quadruple down on it. This is a lot like the drug war in the sense that you're trying to prevent certain bad things from happening by restricting this activity that is definitely going to happen. Everything about immigration suggests to us that there are people who really want to get here. And many of them are in such desperate situations that no matter how difficult you make it or how illegal you make it, they're going to try to get here because the prize for making it, against all odds, living illegally in many circumstances for years, Having the possibility of everything taken away from you in a moment when you get caught later on, if an administration sort of changes parties and power changes hands, like it's worth it. It's worth it to have a shot at the American dream. Like People who are willing to take those kinds of risks could be an extraordinary asset. And we criminalize them. We criminalize them and we, we criminalize the activities of their children, who in many instances come here as very young people. And only know this country as home. And then we do crazy shit, like try to send them home after having educated them. We're, quote unquote it, yeah. home. Quote unquote home. But another thing that's related is the point that you were making just, just a moment ago, which is effectively a response to Tucker Carlson's r- argument about replacement. And I think it's really important. Like the criticism for the most part on the left has been Tucker Carlson is appealing to white nationalist sentiment by using the word replacement to invoke replacement theory and replacement theory is an obvious white supremacist is a white supremacist narrative about how, you know, these outsiders will come in and change the composition of our country and destroy it from within. That's one interpretation. Maybe that's true. I'm going to suggest that it's not true. And I'm going to suggest that even if it is true, that there is a kernel of that, that probably resonates with lots and lots of people who are just skeptical of low-wage immigration and are just skeptical of the possibility that they'll be able to hold on to political power because they don't think, they've presumed that they can't persuade these people to vote in a particular way, so they're going to change the composition of the country. And it seems to me that like neither one of these things is absolutely true, but presuming that the latter is true about the political affiliation of these people, the political loyalties that are likely to emerge. Like, if you pursue a strategy that says they will never vote for you and you are objectively hostile towards them, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like It is entirely likely that you're going to lose these people. And as a result, like, yeah, maybe things will change in a way that is adverse or at least that is inconsistent with your goals. But I just don't think it's true that immigrants are likely to come here and are going to want to recreate the kind of countries that they are in many instances leaving. I know lots and lots of immigrants who are skeptical of strongmen and totalitarian countries and collectivism broadly. There are some of the staunchest supporters for the kind of country that I want to live in, one that like values like freedom and free trade and individual autonomy and all of the other shit that is so important that Americans have, quite frankly, in many instances grown increasingly skeptical of. So I want those people yeah. to come here. God damn it. Shut up, Tucker.
4: And I think Tucker and these folks are talking out of two sides of their mouths, right? You know, on one hand, they take a look at the 2020 election and say, all these working class Hispanics, mm-hmm. we're going to build our wonderful conservative labor party uh-huh. uh, because they love us. Also, they'll never vote for us and turn us into a socialist hellhole. And it's like, okay, well, which one is it, dude? <laughs> like, and, and like about the self fulfilling prophecy, right? Like, I'm from California. I was young at the time, but I remember at Prop 187. Uh, mm-hmm. prior to that Hispanics in the state voted about 5050 on statewide gubernatorial elections you know 50 percent Republican 50 percent Democratic since then it's been like 70 30 80 20 because Pete Wilson and his infinite genius decided hey this demographics growing the most I think we should pick on them and uh, you know the rest is uh, you know it's a little bit more complicated than that that that's basically like the big um, result from that and you know on this replacement theory stuff like, I don't know. I've been on Tucker's show like a half dozen times. I, I you know, I can't read the guy's heart, right? But I know I don't talk about population growth and immigration and how the country is getting older and we need to replace workers who are leaving the workforce. Like, I don't talk about that because I think once you trigger these sort of feelings about replacing people who are getting older – with new foreign people, people get some. Some voters get just like some weird reactions and emotions that I just try to avoid. How, but how mm-hmm. much is it's that? Ugly. Yeah,
2: how much is that driving this? Because we talk a lot about economic stuff because we're all huge fucking nerds. But when you know, you talk to a lot of people, and the cultural stuff is kind of important. You know, the type of people who say, "I can't believe I have to press one for English on um, on the telephone," and and mm-hmm. you know, it's mm-hmm. going to be taken over by people speaking Spanish. Um, and the question I wanted to ask you about this, is there any time, and again, this is a personal opinion thing, it's not really a policy thing, but is there any time when that argument makes sense or is not racist or, you know, nationalist or sort of poisonous in any way? And the, and the reason I ask that is because I have heard people who are deeply sensible make that in Europe, not in the United States, because, I mean, we all know the studies that people of the United States, children of immigrants, you know, become part of the culture faster than anyone could possibly imagine. They basically don't even speak the languages that they came speaking after two generations, right? <laughs> and in Europe, obviously, we have something rather different where the culture is very, very different and is very, very sealed off, particularly, you know, in a place like Sweden where I lived, been very ghettoized. There's not a lot of interaction between cultures, the fact that, you know, mosques are going up everywhere, people get very, very uh, scared of the Swiss voting against minarets, which is like, basically a way of saying (laughs) you cannot build your religious institutions in our country. And it's a different kind of vibe there, obviously, for obvious reasons. And it does feel materially different. When you walk through neighborhoods in, uh, what is it, Brownsville in Texas on the border, it just feels like places I've been half my life. People might not speak English very well, well it's very hard yeah it works and it's like interacting was kind of funny because i was like i couldn't i was trying to buy tacos and i was like no i I was like okay i don't speak spanish but that kind of thing is like oh you know it's fine you go into certain places in europe and it does feel like you've entered like a place that's you know obviously there's these heavy breathing things about no go zones and everything i don't buy that but it does feel different and that's really a reaction that people have of saying what is going to become of swedish culture for instance and that is the replacement that they're talking about. You're replacing all of our glorious Swedish culture. And then the prime minister says, there is no such thing as Swedish culture, which is actually something that he said. And people got very, very angry. And so when I (laughs) left Sweden, the far right party, and I had about 1% of the vote, maybe. And when Mm. I went back to shoot this piece for HBO, it was, the polling was about 20%, making them the second biggest party in the country. And that is, it's not an economic thing for a lot of those people.
4: I don't think economics really explains any of it, frankly. Oh. Uh, maybe we should delete most of the podcast before this or we're talking about econ. Um, I mean, that's what I care about. But um, almost nobody, I think, changes their mind based on this. There's a lot of good polling data over the years and some academic research on this. And economics is basically like number four on the list of things that people care uh-huh. about. Uh, it's it's a lot of these sort of amorphous cultural issues that are difficult to define. Sort of feelings, vibes. My country's changing. I don't like it. I don't like people who are foreigners around me. You know, I, I guess the word is like xenophobia, but I want something that's a little less ugly than that, or less sort of uh, pointing out bigotry, right? But people just don't like foreigners that much, and they feel they want to feel at home in their country, and they think it's weird. Basically, and uncomfortable. And we have to be, I think, sensitive to that in some ways. And as a libertarian, sometimes like, my general response is like, I don't care, like, get over it. I mean, like, you (laughs) don't, you don't have a right to a culture, like you have a right to do what you want and interact freely with people but I realize that I'm a freaking weirdo and that doesn't really work when talking to normal people like this. Right. So <laughs> one of the things I'm glad that you exa- inter-
2: acknowledge that you're not a normal person, <laughs> <You are. laughs>
4: I am just autistic enough to know that. You know, just <laughs> creeping <onto> the spectrum. the <laughs> <laughs> So I, there are differences in Europe. Like I lived in London for a year and I have a lot of family in um, Norway, France, and England who are all um, the descendants of uh, Iranian Muslim immigrants who went there over, like, multiple generations from, like, the 70s onward. And maybe it's like a microcosm, but these people are all, like, painfully French. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like annoyingly French, yeah. right? Or, an- or, like, annoyingly Norwegian. It, it, it might, it might also just,
2: like, be Irish. Iranians, by the way.
4: There's well, they're annoying, yeah. yeah. Generally, we, we right? have these television like a television show, way.
2: Alex, in America. You might have heard of it, where people are like so disgustingly LA and it has something about Iran in the title, the shahs of the shahs of sunset. Yeah, it really has nothing to do with Iran. <laughs> You're like the most LA people in the world. Sorry, Matt. It's true,
4: it is. No, no it's, it's true, it's right? True. And so it. But Pyrongelus. Pyrongelus. Goodness, I haven't heard that phrase. That brings me that brings me home, baby. Um, but I, I think part of it is also um, I think this is where welfare rules come in, where in Europe you really can live off of the welfare state, in government mm-hmm. housing, segregated immediately. Where you don't have to work for long periods of time. So, I mean, mm. it, it, and you look at Iranian immigrants actually who went to Sweden, Germany, the United Kingdom, Canada, and the US, and they had all about the same levels of education. But that's like the order of like crazy large welfare state to smaller welfare state. And they do the worst to the best. So, most welfare yes. in Sweden, Iranians had outcomes. Similar Iranian immigrants, similar to Somalis.
2: There's, there's, like a, the, least there's a Somali study that that followed Somalis in Sweden and in the United States, and like every Somali in the United States, like you know, owned a Fortune 500 company after like five minutes. <laughs> and in Sweden, they were all like living in government housing, being like, "Yeah, this is this is terrible and dark and cold." So, so,
4: so I think that's part of it, right? Like governments in wealth in Europe, like basically pay them not to work and not to integrate. I think that's part of it, and I think another part of it is. The types of immigrants who go to a place like that are going to be a little different than the types of immigrants that come to a place like the United States. And just the culture in Europe, the native culture, is different from that of the United States, where in the US we have this sort of, um, you know, it's not perfect, right? But we have more of a culture of um, being an American is not based on your blood. Or your culture, or Mm -hmm. or the borders, heritage. It's not really a nation state in that sense, right? Like a lot of European countries are based on, you know, Deutschland is the land for the Deutsche, you know, (laughs) and like France is land of the Franks. Like these are ethnic groups and tribes that settled there, and these are the states that created for them. And that's and so it's just difficult. Like, what does it mean to be French? is a different feeling and a different vibe than what it means to be an American. Because, like, I'm insulted. If somebody says, like, who's here, who's like, the descendant of an immigrant recently and is like, oh, no, I'm not an American. I'm like, of course you are. Yeah. But you go to, like, my Norwegian, um, my dad's first cousin who's Norwegian, who's half Norwegian, half Iranian, she says she feels Norwegian. Norwegians correct her and say, no, you're uh, something I, else. I've
2: always. Yeah, yeah. They're like, no, but the, where are you really f- from? Actually, it does actually happen in Sweden. It's, like, kind of a thing that people say on Twitter here, but in Sweden, it's, like, <laughs> literally every day. But in one final point on this, and a brief one, as I've made this point many, many times in the past, is is that it's always important for Americans to remember because we really think that we are special and that these things only happen to us like racism. Everyone everywhere hates foreigners. it's it's literally without a question i mean you can find a country and tell me that there is like people streaming across the border and they're like this is great you know venezuelans coming they hate it they hate it switzerland has four official languages and they hate oh my god they can't stand you do that yeah they're like we're gonna go join the eu i can't even get get along with the the germans i mean come on (laughs) but that is true like everywhere you go i mean you know in asia it's true and you know I mean, particularly in Russia, I mean, people from Dagestan are not, like, welcomed in actual Russia, etc. But, you know, we do think there's a uniqueness to our xenophobia, where it just seems to be that's actually kind of the baseline condition uh, uh, in the world for people coming in who are not, quote unquote, part of your culture.
4: And and I think the general for America, I think the general feeling is there's generally a lot less of that, probably, I think, compared to a lot of other countries, right? I think, you know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand... A lot of other countries in the Western Hemisphere, I think, do it really well, too. But Hmm. I'd say there's on general less general anti foreign sentiment, right? Like if you try to appeal to Americans and say, oh, we're a country of immigrants, your ancestors came over too, and they're like, oh yeah, I guess that's true. Mm. But you can't say that in France. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. oh yeah, my ancestors came over at Versingetrix in uh, yeah. you know, the first uh you know, first century BC. Like, you know I don't remember Grandpappy getting off the boat from Palermo. Like, what the hell are you talking about? Like it's just not it's just not a different vibe. It's a different I vibe. actually I
0: I love asking people where they're from and trying to get a sense of their pedigree and how they got here, mostly because I, I think it's fucking fascinating. Like I just got here and I'm curious about that. And I would like to talk to you about it. And <laughs> how's the that fact work that out for our, you like, when that, when you our <laughs> shared story, <laughs> well, generally I don't get a lot of, a lot of problems with respect so to that sort of thing.
3: Hasn't, hasn't Tread been a part of a, like,
4: uh, is it. a, a great but, story. But about let that. me, but, I but got I wonder, a great story about that. I got to tell well, you right well, now.
3: Well, well, let tell, we've, let we've tell going, the story. Well,
0: we've been going for a little while, and I, and I want to do... There's oh two God, things the I want, and I'm, I'm enthralled by but the conversation. But let me let's give story. you some context, because I want to know what you guys want to do, because we talked about the I other stuff we're going story. to get into. Okay, but I also want solutions. Like, do we have time for that? the story, and then
4: I'll give you the solutions. Okay. So I was having a conversation with some of my brother's friends in high school, and that came up, like, where are your ancestors from? And this one girl said oh, you know, I don't know where my ancestors came from. And we're like, what are you talking about? Your last name is Brooke. That's like English. And she goes, no, no, no. My grandfather killed a man and took his name. So I have no idea where my ancestors came from.
3: <laughs> I love it.
4: Uh, I love oh, that. Man.
2: I love the <laughs> casual, um, well, like, I, I, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. <laughs> let me just explain here.
0: <laughs> That's the best story. I mean, I, I want those Camille, stories. It's, al-
1: it's also the solution. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Kill your grandparents. Don't, don't
0: come for me. I got guns. This is the second <laughs> <afternoon>. move. Um, <laughs> listen, so we talked, I mentioned solutions because people often talk about this and it's like all of the dire consequences. And I think we've, we've had a great conversation about what's wrong um, and frankly, about what the choice is between. Because it's not a choice between we can restrict Im- immigration to zero and protect the jobs and protect our high wages and keep all the drugs and the bad people out. No, dummy, you're choosing the border crisis. That is the choice that you're actually making and the people are going to come anyways and the various impacts on things are going to happen and you just can't build a wall high enough. You, you simply can't. No one wanted to build a wall more than Trump and he, he fucked y'all. Like <laughs> Mexico didn't pay. The wall ain't done. Are you kidding me? So let's talk about active. Actual solutions. And I want to turn to AOC because on an issue like immigration, I always imagine like this is this is someone who I'm I don't agree with on many things when it comes to like economic policy, but I imagine we'll agree on immigration stuff. Uh, (laughs) And while I suspect we kind of agree in some respect, there's this compassion. I remember her going down to the border um, in 2019 (laughs) and like weeping and being at the fence, beating it. And I don't want to make too much fun because I suspect a lot of the emotion is genuine. But when you make a declaration like we can dismantle this, like so far, I haven't really heard her articulate anything that I can say Oh, you know what? That's, that's it. That's the great, that's the great path forward. Like I've recently heard her talk about immigration and she refuses to acknowledge that there's actually a crisis on the border and talks about this in terms of it being an imperialism crisis and a carceral crisis and our immigration system being based on our carceral system. And then when she talks about solutions, she says, well, our solutions need to be rooted in foreign policy. And America has this history of interventionism and destabilization and also the climate crisis and trade. And it's like, what are, you, what are you actually talking about here? And the response to that is probably something like white supremacy. And I just, I mean, Alex, it strikes me that that's probably not the actual solution to this problem. Like, what does a good reform agenda for fixing immigration look like?
4: I mean, the number one thing is to increase legal immigration at every skill level, permanent green cards, temporary visas coming into this country to work legally and to go back if they want to. Right. That is the way um, I hate to say and, this. And when you say increase
0: it, you, you mean like just making the processes more efficient,
4: more, more numbers, Okay, more and more numbers, because right? most of these visas are in law numerically constrained. There is okay. a numerical cap literally per year. So what we need to do is get rid of these numerical caps, allow American businesses to hire people from abroad uh, legally, easily, so they can come here lawfully. They don't have to lie about asylum. They don't have to sneak across the border, etc. And you don't have to have, like, total open borders to do this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Mexican illegal immigration prior to these recent changes in 2020 – was collapsing. I mean it had it went from a high of over a million in 2000 down to just a few hundred thousand in 2018 and our research shows that for every 3 visas given to Mexicans more over that time period the number of Mex- it, it basically dissuaded two Mexicans from coming illegally. So right. we give them visas And these aren't permanent green cards. These are temporary Mm -hmm. work visas. So we do that for Central Americans. We do that for other people around the world. It drives them out of the illegal market, brings them into the legal one because, you know, you can't regulate a black market. You just can't. Um, And then we can use the law enforcement resources we have to weed out the actual criminals, the people who have criminal who've committed crimes and who are national security threats rather than spending most of our time trying to apprehend people who just want to come here and work. So that's like, that's the number one thing. And that's the thing that like people like AOC just will never, or Bernie Sanders will never understand. They want to blame it on American free trade agreements or the war on drugs or imperialism. And all these things have these problems, right? Like I'm against imperialism, but I want to legalize all the drugs. Right. But the reason (laughs) why central Americans are coming is because their wages here are six or seven times higher. Right. right, And you can legalize all the cocaine you want in the world, and if that <laughs> difference still exists, they're still going to want to come illegally. And he yeah. might have more energy and doing more it.
2: Moynihan's going to be done. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be amazing. I'm going to be surrounded by all these immigrants with visas. By the way, um, you know, yeah. trying to drag me out of my house as my heart has stopped. That's fine. <laughs> I'm giving them jobs, right? Is jobs that Americans want to do? A, take me out of my house. Is I've program. overdosed on cocaine? I mean, who who else <laughs> yes. is going to do it?
3: The voluntary and mutually <laughs> exactly. beneficial exchange
2: exactly. <laughs> uh, for everybody. For everybody. <laughs> this isn't my. This is an imperial crisis camille <laughs> <But> <laughs> by the <laughs> way to your point Alex, she did say that too and i want to point out she said it's a trade crisis a trade crisis uh which right? i don't quite even understand what she's saying that free trade has yeah so yeah. what
4: she's saying is that free trade agreements cafta and nafta have caused people to come here because those agreements have destroyed their economy that's it's just
2: not true bernie it sanders nonsense
4: it
0: doesn't make any sense no
1: it's old hat to probably all of us on this, but it's worth for listeners go look at the debate between George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan in 1980. I think they had one debate in 1980 and they tried to outcompete each other for opening the border both ways in, it's amazing. in which it hw bush uh, reagan's like we need a free trade zone and hw bush said you know we're the frame of illegal immigration is wrong we have a criminalized an activity that people just want to do things that it's normal we should try to figure out a way to make that happen and this is back when mexico was a fucking poor country you know the the birth rate was through the roof it was seriously a, a much different country than it is now NAFTA and CAFTA are part of that reason, right? Like, mm-hmm. it became a much more prosperous country in the decades since. So go check that out if you're feeling very restrictionist. Yeah.
0: Can I offer a parting shot here? Because, and I know we're going to have to let you go in a minute, Alex, but like the Biden administration really is flailing when it, when it comes to responding to the border crisis and figuring out what their policy is. I think it was like several weeks ago that Biden decided uh, that VP Harris would be the point person on this issue. <laughs> Um and it it for the most part it seems like this weird game of hot potato like maybe they didn't consult her before tapping her to do this because she doesn't seem to want this job at all like, she, she wants the next job be, like seen down there <laughs> like, it's the weirdest thing like she doesn't want the contamination of being responsible for fixing this thing that it seems to me that she knows she can't fucking fix but also the only time I've heard her talk concretely about like what to be done in the last couple of weeks she was talking about root causes and how aid will help address the problems in these in the home countries of these folks and
2: prevent them from wanting to come here and it's just like are you fucking kidding i can send her bill easterly's number maybe she can call him up and see if he can inform her wow
4: you know as somebody who very much dislikes harris I want to say I'm glad she got this job because it only make her look terrible. I mean she obviously has like done no work in her life. So I I tried to work with her her senator's office when she was senator. She was like never there, and her staff was flailing and incompetent. (laughs) And I'm like, you know what? This sounds like her entire freaking career, right? Is she yeah. just like wants? I mean, look at her campaign. It was like a mess. It was, was so like, bad. What? Why it was he pick- so bad? I was like, why did he pick up Californian? What, is not he trouble winning <laughs> yeah. California? What are you doing? Well, we, um, we know why.
0: We know why he picked her. He gave us the criteria yes, she's from early California. on, yeah. Camille. That is not yep. why. Thank it you. Oh, that's because a euphemism, she has brown, ge- brown, brown <laughs> genitalia of a particular shape. <laughs> but, but that's but what he said. Don't. He's going to pick a woman of color. Don't that need the is visual. what he means. Don't need, don't need the visual. I'm, I'm just telling you what he said. I'm,
4: just, I'm, just, I'm translating it
0: into English for everyone.
4: I think, I'm just saying. Yeah, I mean, and, and moving it's on. how we make from decisions the, uh... in this country. <laughs> It's, that, that's uh, – it's my favorite article of the Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to choke. <laughs> uh, but you know, her, her point about sending aid is just a, is, is a joke. I mean there's this great paper by Michael Clemens who's an economist at the Center for Global Development. And what he found is as can t- countries get richer up until about $10,000 per year GDP – Um, Mm. Immigration increases because you can't move if you're really poor. (laughs) You you can't move if you're making $500 a year, but you're a lot able to move and probably willing if you're making like eight or nine. And a lot of these countries in Central America are like four to seven. And I'm like, okay, so let's say foreign aid works for the first time ever and actually makes these countries (laughs) richer, right? Well, that means we're going to get more of them coming, which is fine with me, but that's not really the goal. And I need a bunch (laughs) of poor people, a bunch of cash – who are already coming here and no, like, black market path to get here, I, don't know, I think a lot of them are going to end up on the border with these, uh, you know, Harris vouchers or whatever they're what? going to be, these Biden bucks. <laughs> you know, and, yeah, uh, Alan asking to get, asking for admission.
2: <laughs> at, at least we'll get our money back. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh.
0: well alex i want to thank you for uh for for coming out and helping us sort through all of this this has been uh, this is the most valuable conversation on immigration anyone has had in this country thank you in 50 years it's just true maybe 60 it's absolutely yeah, true
2: probably 60 maybe 60 yeah
0: probably longer
4: I, I, probably I'll ever credit i'll take credit for that so you thank should
0: you, <laughs> you should yeah. and and we'll all remember that we have answered the question which is the title of alex's book are these people wretched refuse mm-hmm. the answer is obviously yeah clearly i was surprised yeah. by what else that when I flipped, what else are they good I flipped for to the and end i just talking wanted, about I, myself I here. wanted to
2: get to the spoiler and alex was like they are and i was like what that doesn't make sense no. he's like they, pro-immigration they, they are and we need yeah, them. we need them that's but the they're answer. garbage <laughs> people is what he
3: says that's an actual alex but but seriously, <laughs> not the Irish Italians, oh, right? Yeah. Like the half
1: Irish, half Italians. Oh, we can deport we, them. We <laughs> right? mamma mia, that's a good <laughs>
4: point. But uh, wow. what? seriously, you got to buy the book. Just buy yes. the book. Yeah. <laughs> no, you should
0: buy the book. Yeah. I'm actually buying the Kindle version right now. Yeah. And I, don't
4: I forget. It yet. Don't forget to get the paperback. Can too. you
2: strip it? Can you strip it of DRM and send it to me?
4: <laughs> um. I'm an immigration analyst, not a funny numbers <laughs> tech analyst. Right? I don't know what the letter is. What's a DR? I don't even know what that is. Yeah, I'll, I'll
0: take care Rights. of Moynihan.
1: Okay. You, should, you should get Moynihan to uh, do an audiobook version just all in hilarious immigrant yeah. accent
2: voices. <laughs> By the way, you have to pay me so much money because it's my last job ever. Yeah, Uh, before the cocaine overdose. Yeah, (laughs) that Uh,
1: would sell.
4: You definitely have to do all the regression table output tables
3: and like
1: Stephen Hawking. No, and Melania voice. Just let's be clear:
0: there are no regression tables in this book. It is (laughs) Mm scintillating There is sex, money, drugs, power. It is incredible. You want to read this? Greatest book since The Godfather. This is what I've been told. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm trying to sell this uh, for mean, you,
3: Alex. You, know, Ma- you can't talk Puzo, about regression tables.
4: Ma- Mario Puzo told me that. Um, yeah, he was in, yeah. you know, he, by, by the way dream was dream also a filthy immigrant immigrants. <laughs> Yeah, he saw go what go I was doing this, Alex. <laughs> yeah. That's why I said The like, Godfather. Yeah. I was like, "My man Mario, uh you got it, <laughs> buddy." And yeah. Yeah, here it is. So it's Mario Puzo endorsed. There you go. What can yeah. you
0: do? Mario Puzo and Ben Powell and Alex Narasta. Thank you very much for joining us, brother.
4: Thank you, Alex. Thanks, man. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, guys. We, we, we know of new methods of attack.
1: The hilarity of the conversation Let's between the time that we hit a oh, stop yeah. recording but that until oh,
3: now.
2: God.
1: Right? Yeah, you know, I'm, but holy glad, I'm glad cow. we hit stop so we could
0: so we could talk shit about some people. It was fun. Oh, oh man, my God. That, was, um, that was brutal. Oh, Alex,
2: is, Alex is on and he's like, you know, I really love immigrants. I love everyone. The thing goes <laughs> off. He's like, look, these motherfuckers are he's a and savage. just goes off. It went to like Eddie Murphy raw in like yeah, a half a second. No, it, was it was incredible. It was bad. I mean, the only thing I said in that conversation after you stopped recording I was like, "Alex, isn't that racist?" And that was just like, okay, <laughs> like, yes, racist." Yeah, and he's like, "He's like, we're recording." I was like, "Why are you talking that voice?" He's like, yeah, "What what's voice?" The truth.
3: He's yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, doing this wrong
2: thing about DMX. I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, like, all
0: right, I'm just R.I.P. barking. R.P. Man, Woo. man, all right. You know, was, the thing, the thing about D.M.X. ODing and passing away tragically is it actually makes me feel really fucking old. Like D.M.X. got like really big and old, and I just I remember how young and and aggressive he was at one point, yeah. and you know watching him perform those songs later in life. Doing some weird face-off thing with Snoop Dogg, both of them gray-haired, like the least scary-looking people on earth. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, wow! Like I used so to think Snoop this was shit scary was cool. when he when he killed that guy,
2: but <laughs> he got off. Well, you know, <laughs> he, he did get off. Get off. He's, he was in. He was innocent. Yeah. But well, did Lutter you see those? Was the case that they gave him so. yeah that's right yeah, was, yeah. he did they, a 187 they did on <laughs> not an undercover cop but somebody else but um you, yeah. did you see those tweets uh like uh, when people were saying like why do we why are we saying all these nice things about Prince Philip when DMX is like a, a bigger cultural figure or something and I was like really I mean the guy was 99 he like fought valiantly in World War II two and like dmx had a couple of good songs and 15 kids like i'm just like i don't know is that <laughs> man, they're not the same person we can we can look, like both of them how about that we can't like i don't, I don't know anything uh,
0: about prince philip i don't know jack shit about him but you I know, know, the crazy know thing about the songs that? from it's dark as hell is hot
1: prince philip did not look as good at like Lollapalooza with his shirt off no that's true just he, he that's not.
2: but i'll tell you what
0: encouraging though. encouraging crowds full of, of yes. white children to say nigger
2: Yes. Come on. I think I think it was at the wood, was, it woods, was Woodstock, right? Or is it yeah, all Plaza? Yeah. I mean, was that probably one of those both. shitty Woodstock. I imagine he performed
0: the same songs, both places. That was all not mentioned Swiss in his inspired things.
2: In his obituaries. But you know, in Prince Philip when I was I was listening to the BBC World Service in the morning, because I replaced the NPR with that. Because it pisses me off, but not as much. And they were uh, doing the Prince Philip coverage and literally within three minutes they brought up that time when he was in China. And he said uh, to the British students, did you, did you hear about this? Like, this was, like, famous. And he said, you guys, have been, how long have you been here, uh, studying here? And he said, if you stay here any longer, you're going to get slanty eyes. And it oh. was overheard. <laughs> and literally, the guy... And so I was seeing this, and he was, like, famously <laughs> had a couple of, like, gaffes like this, right? And I was there thinking, like, can you imagine... The guy's n- lived almost a hundred years, like just shy of a hundred years, like was brave in the Navy, like fighting, you know, Nazis and the rest of it. And a pretty impressive life. In one time, he says like a bad joke and it's in his, it's like in the obituaries of all of them. It's like, in yeah, one time it, he made a one joke. Time? I mean, well, you only have to get caught one time. I mean, you can deny sure. it after that, right? You probably said it a few more times. But I was like, wow, we're living in a time the guy said some off-color thing like 30 years ago. And it's like in his obituary. Like, what? Seriously? This is important enough to merit a mention in the man's obituary? But, you know, I mean, it was Prince Philip and otherwise I don't give a shit about him. So it was enough to make me talk about him.
0: Welch, what was your favorite DMX song?
1: you know what i was uh thinking when he died that i probably have never heard a single one would i have that's, that's not true you you definitely have
2: yes you, you, have. you you've at but least like you know, kind
0: of heard it but you may not up, know up in song. here yeah right yeah go make, go
3: make me oh yeah okay in here all right, all right. <laughs> i got up in here
2: yeah that's pretty good i like yeah. that song yeah i, I was know. gonna make a joke about something about him and i can't make that joke i realized why well, yeah. it's just something. It's disrespectful because he died it's of a drug soon. overdose. It's a little soon. It's a little soon. We, we'll wait. A little wait. soon. I don't want to be disrespectful. We'll really? He seems like a nice dude. He just loves having too. kids, though. <laughs> just, well, he had like he 15? Lo-
1: 15 kids. That's yeah. like Marley territory. Was he Jamaican? No. Not that. Uh, I, actually, uh, I don't know. Maybe. He could a, be. I don't maybe know. He's said honorary Jamaican. Who successful was the guy in the Jets, successful jets successful? that had like 20
2: kids or something? Do you
1: remember that guy?
3: Some
2: guy in the Jets. It was like some NFL guy who had like so many kids that I didn't know that it was mathematically possible. And like I spent the day (laughs) trying to do the math on it when I read about it in the New York Post. I think I can't remember his name. There was a great
1: article in the uh, in Sports Illustrated back when it was a magazine like 20 years ago um, that talked about just like how all the NBA players were just spreading their seed all over the place. That was the it was the article that like. They had, like, a picture of Larry Bird with his, like, very Larry Bird face next to yeah. Sue Bird, and he hadn't acknowledged her birth from what I recall from the from the article, and she was, like, six foot eight yeah. <laughs> and blonde with, like, this hooked nose and was really good at basketball and it was, like, a, a, a good passer and stuff like that, and, like, the article was so good that at the end he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But it, it was uh it was what's his face? The guy used to be an incredible dunker. He played for the Sonics, uh Sean Kemp, who had like yeah. a thousand kids. Like he would they weren't even Sean they weren't even Kemp. playing with how many how yeah. many, I mean Sean Kemp, you're too young to remember uh, no Camilo, no, I had a Sean he,
0: Kemp jersey number When 40. he
1: first came out, he was unbelievable. He got fat, but like he could fucking jump and break your oh, head. Yeah. Uh he oh, yeah. was incredible and great.
2: It was uh it was Antonio Cromarty, by the way, who has fourteen children He has fewer children than DMX, (laughs) so we established the DMX standard. He has fourteen children. That's that's like a legit basketball team. That's Mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's some people on the bench too. (laughs) Yes, that's (laughs) what I mean.
1: the whole squad. Right. No, like (laughs) taxi squad. Like yeah. you got the guys who who don't even suit <laughs> up, but like just in case there's an injured reserve problem.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I always like how they play that in the uh, Bob Marley documentaries, because like he's got to mm. be this this you know peace and love warrior guy and really great with progressive causes, and then they have to like deal with the fact that he's sort of fucking everybody in the band and I mean, all of the yeah. Yeah, and this is. This
0: is oh, I mean, that's just super Jamaican.
1: Like, it just mm. is.
0: I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> confident I've I've mentioned my own <laughs> my own muddy pedigree. Yeah, um, which is to say that my my father. Well, I, I guess I could put my mom's business in the street. I'm a grown ass man, and she's she's grown too. <laughs> but my mom is my biological father's second mistress, and my older oh, sister second is literally like 13 months older than me from the first mistress. Wow. Both wow. of these mistresses had no idea he was married with two kids. Wow. He was bouncing between America and Jamaica. And and I am not his youngest kid. There are at least three others that I am aware of. And again, multiple other moms. Gotta say it's Jamaica. Getting it on the Jamaica. plane. That's yeah.
2: serious. That's good. Like I appreciate it because he's getting on the plane, he's coming to America. It's not like going down the block to you know, <laughs> tivoli or something like,
1: but he was yeah. fine so this, this but is a some little effort. Of, some effort you know that's not, that's not yeah, uh, have you met all the kids do you, do you have a, a sense that you know all of your siblings Thanks. no i i have not met
0: all of them i've talked to most of them for sure um even if there are some unknowns it could only be so many i mean actually no he could be more prolific than i know perhaps he could be more prolific than even he knows um but <laughs> i i know i know enough of them have some good relationships in a couple of places, a lot of good people like, trying and having a life of their own. Uh, but I was very fortunate. I have a, a stepfather who came into my life when I was about three years old, r- raised me, helped raise me and forged me into a man and gave me confidence in myself. And i was very fortunate in that regard. So is hmm. what it is. I never called him stepfather, only dad.
1: So, I, away that's some, the ac- some years ago, absolutely accurate way to do that. Hell I yeah. wanted to ask you in the context of our previous conversation, even during it, but um, didn't want to jeopardize Alex's time. Alex was great, uh, I thought, and yeah. especially in the in the unrecorded part as well. But uh, <laughs> uh, any people in your family, to your knowledge, Ben, while they were in America, and illegal immigrant.
0: Um, not in my family. They've certainly had some, uh, immigration challenges in terms of like navigating green cards and citizenship, et cetera. Um, and a lot of those things that got more complicated after September 11th, uh, 2001 mm-hmm. for obvious reasons you should know anyways, but certainly people close to my family, like lots of them. And some of them were, you know, here, actively here illegally, and we all knew it and had to be very careful. And it's, it's a real, it has a material impact on your life and the kind of decisions that you make. And it really does. I mean, I don't care if it sounds bad to some people who think that they were lawbreakers. It takes a certain amount of courage to do that shit, to live your life in that way, because you're just pursuing something better for yourself and for your children. And quite frankly, honestly, if you found yourself in the same circumstance, Like unfortunate enough to be born in the borders of a country that is that is kind of I I love things about Jamaica. It's kind of a shitty place to like have to try to make your bones for a lot of complicated reasons. And when America is just over there, you got like a network there. You want to get there. You want to try. You want to make a go of it. Who doesn't want that? Um, And I want I want the people who want to do that. We want to make the most of their lives and, and try to do it here. So I'm, I, I care a lot about this. I always go back to Jamaica and think to myself every time I've gone back like there, but for the grace of God, go I, and I'm incredibly grateful to, to be here and to have the, the opportunities that I've had and have been afforded. So
1: um, one thing that I, I'm always yeah. reminded of living with, uh, an immigrant who became a, a nationalized, uh, in fact, married to, uh, a listener of the <laughs> column, uh, uh became an naturalized
0: for- forging children with her uh,
1: citizen um i mean it is the biggest cliche in the world and it's also true like those people who chose this country even if it's through you know questionable marriages or whatever <laughs> um or questionable decisions on who to marry to marry um they are the most patriotic they will stand up and recite the pledge of allegiance in public in ways that i just can't possibly do without at least like, you know, that kind of thing. Like, uh, it's, it's a thing like people who choose the country and who go through the difficulty of doing it and who go through and people don't realize this, who haven't been part of the system. Like, you know, there's three years when we were living here where every time we left just to visit her, uh, family back in France, you had to apply for what they helpfully called parole, they literally mm. call it advanced parole. And Michael knows this, too, like where like they have to approve you flying back even for a little while. Mm. And there was a, you know, the one one year we did that and like the approval didn't come back until like three or four days before we we flew. Like, how do you buy a ticket th- that way? And and because of the laws that were changed in the mid 90s under Bill Clinton, they gave so much authority to people at the border to just not like the looks of you and hit a stamp in your passport and suddenly you can't come back in the country for five years if you don't have the green card status if you're in pr- the advanced parole it was something that was you know while they were uh adjudicating your green card this is what you're sort of in this limbo and you lived in fear of the dark room at the airport everybody did right you know like we would walk we'd come in and like they would sort of check out the passport and then you'd see all these people in headscarves being carted off into a room and sometimes they would cart us off in that room too bad way to go so like if you have the constitution to go through that and, and our version of that is so much more mild than everybody else's for the most part who made these arduous journeys like yeah at the end of that when you realize this is a country where you can come in and have a weird accent and do weird stuff and be successful you might like wave a flag unironically like yeah. that's pretty cool
2: yeah alex pointed uh Pointed something out which I was not expecting it to come out of his mouth, but um, you know, being complimentary to this country and how it actually assimilates immigrants better than most countries, which I think is absolutely and demonstrably true. But you know, I wanted to ask him, and I didn't get the chance because there's so much to talk about on this subject. Is if he can actually name a country in the world that has an immigration policy like ours? And Hmm. because I and what I mean by that is most countries are far more restrictive. And, you know, obviously, there's very something very specific about geography and about our borders and about the size of the country, too. But if you think about it, like, I mean, this is like pretty much catch and release. uh, And, you know, people like, you know, Reagan's. Amnesty and various other mm-hmm. kind of let up that is really rare, and it does not happen in a lot of places in the world. I'm sure that Alex knows this stuff back to front he could point out a place that maybe does something similar. And I can think of maybe uh, Europe during the, the migration crisis, and they saw an enormous backlash, and I don't think it would ever happen again, because it totally threw the the balance of politics out of whack in almost every single country that actually took a lot of migrants from, you know, Greece, Italy, France, Germany to Sweden— and that that was kind of a one off sort of thing, right? That was a very, and, and it only could happen in Europe now. I mean, it couldn't have happened in Europe twenty years ago because there's just kind of a political moment that. Yes that and no, sense. Michael.
1: Yes and no, in, in the sense that that uh, twenty years ago in Europe was Schengen. It's it was the the, well, the treaty allowing for borderless so, travel within the EU with some caveats, and that did change especially London, but a uh, plenty of other places 100%. as well as the Polish Polish plumbers came in. one
2: hundred percent. And yeah, no, the Schengen the Schengen stuff allowing people to travel across European countries without passport control uh like facilitated it happening, but no uh leader in any country was was willing to come up and say, no, enough, except for in Italy, and Matteo Salvini, who's you know not running the country at the time, but made a, a political career kind of based on that. And what people Le Pen, with, Le
1: Pen, like Le Pen, uh, he didn't he didn't ever get to power, but yeah, like, that's where he rose. Yeah,
2: and his daughter too. And it's it's you know and. But I would say, I would say this is like, that is when we talk, people forget this about Brexit, because it's all now about like Irish borders and import duties and taxes and look at the, you know, troglodytes voted for it and blah, blah, blah. They tend to forget that the entire debate was about immigration. The entire like uh, Brexit vote was about immigration. It was like, we don't want to be a part of this contiguous landmass where people can just keep coming into our country. That is essentially what the argument was. And there's all these other things where people pretend that they were having these high-level conversations that people in the Brexit debate were actually having, but they weren't. And that was effectively it. So immigration, like, the whole Brexit thing is an immigration thing, too. I mean, it's everywhere at all times. And we're so fucking annoying that we think that that there's a unique characteristic to our immigration debate. There is not. Is there any other stuff we should talk about that's, like, not immigration-related? Well, well, yeah, no,
0: for sure. There, there are plenty of other things. I mean, I, I, we've already been going for a while, and I'm wondering if we should maybe save some of the foreign policy stuff for later. Yeah, that's too um, complicated. <laughs> you know, th- there there are many things going on in Minnesota right now um, as we speak. I think this is, what, day three of street protests? Four, there. I think, yeah. Maybe day four. Yeah. Um, as, as most of, you know, there was a police involved shooting, um, a police officer, uh, was involved in a traffic stop. There were several police officers, one vehicle, um, a young man was being taken into custody. Apparently he had some open warrants. They stopped him because of an expired registration, found the open warrants and she tried to pull, or at least thought she was pulling her handgun, pulled a taser. Sorry, she thought she was pulling her taser, yells taser while she's discharging the weapon because the, the kid is trying to flee and shoots and kills this young man. And I imagine you know this story, but there are some details anyways. And uh, yeah, ha- craziness ensues. And most of the conversation about these events has had everything to do with race, and the racial dynamics involved in this particular shooting. And of course, this is taking place against the backdrop of the Chauvin trial, which is recently entered the the next phase, which is to say that the defense is calling its witnesses. And that is, I guess, in the second or third day, this is it Wednesday, the third day just completed of uh, the defense uh, pursuing its case there. I believe they've had a use of force expert. Today, there was, uh, I guess, some Forensic pathologists, uh, pathologists yeah. who who yeah. testified, and you know things are still continuing to take shape there. So I think both of those things are probably worth a, a little bit of scrutiny. I don't know how much attention you gentlemen have been paying to it. It's it's rather difficult to follow the Chauvin trial in some respects, because mm-hmm. um, you can't just rely on the media reports for reasons that I've I've highlighted. We've highlighted here before. I think most of the highlights that tend to make it into the press are generally about like the prosecution's seeming points scored mm-hmm. because virtually everyone has an expectation that, you know, they know what happened here, which is that George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin by placing a knee on his neck for nine minutes. And obviously, there's a defense side of this, and the defense is making a case. And exactly what the jury is seeing is rather. It's different. It's different to be a member of a jury. Which and is pretty interesting. I think, yeah, I think the case. A, there, it seems to me, I'll just put, a, put this bow on it. It seems to me that there is an abundance of reasonable doubt that the prosecution is going to have to overcome here with at least things that complicate a story that seemed rather straightforward to most people. But that story still seems pretty straightforward to most people. Straightforward enough that despite the absence of any sort of physical evidence— And despite the absence of any concrete evidence that either this shooting or the one that took place in Brooklyn Center, which is what, like some 15 minute drive away from Minneapolis, like that either one of these shootings had anything explicitly to do with race, i.e., you know, not shootings, but deaths is the sort of thing that could not have happened but to a black person. There's no evidence of that.
2: But it hasn't come up in the and trial, it doesn't which is, which is pretty interesting too. It doesn't yeah. seem like anyone's pursuing that angle in the trial. Well, they can't. It's, yeah. It, well, yeah. It's, and they're pursuing it in, in the media for sure, but uh-huh. not in the trial. But I would say this. I mean, you know, Camille, you and I have talked about this and watched a little bit. Of it, you know, I've had it on in the background because I find the kind of procedural stuff pretty interesting. It's mm-hmm. different than the OJ thing in so many ways that, you know, this Very is kind true. of in the weed stuff, right? It's not like mm-hmm. exciting, hilarious, Cato Kalen, that kind of stuff. It's <laughs> it's really deliberate, kind of slow, and you know, it's complicating because That's true. What yeah. is going to happen is if you know Chauvin walks or he's lightly punished, it's going to be he was vindicated in killing this man, right? That will be the narrative, right? And I'm not saying that, what do I believe in this? I think both sides have made compelling points in a lot of ways. But what people don't remember, and they're going to have to remember that reasonable doubt, as you just said, is the standard here, right? If there is reasonable doubt, if they introduce a little bit of doubt, right, that says that, you know, George Floyd was horribly mistreated by a guy who who didn't know how to be a cop, but the reason he died was because, you know, if, if Derek Chauvin had done that to a George Floyd who had never done drugs or had, didn't have a heart condition, whatever it might, whatever you want to say, mm-hmm. this this wouldn't have happened, right? That I'm not saying that that's it, but that's what they're trying to establish. And if they they insert a little bit of that doubt, how do they... One, re- you need one they, juror. That's it. You just need one. That's it, right? And you just so, need uh, one. And, and as, you know, we talk about this stuff all the time of like, The shittiness of the American criminal justice system and the over-incarceration of pretty much everybody and everything being a felony. If we were to kind of adhere to that kind of ideology and just forget the fact that everyone's really thinking about this racially and this is a reckoning and it needs to go a certain way, we would say, well, that's a great feature of the system that we can't just, you know, like mm-hmm. the, w- w- the reasonable doubt is a good standard, right? And people right. say like, we just don't want to throw everybody in jail for every sort of little thing. But I think that if people were to actually watch this, and I mean, watch it, there's a lot yeah. going on. And again, I think both sides have, have had moments where I'm like, man, he is fucked. I think that's or right. I'm like, man, they look like they've actually introduced some some doubt here. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. I think they'd probably look at this in a, in, in a slightly different way. But- and I'll end on this because it relates to the, the, the Brooklyn Center thing. We know the result always, always. We don't know the actual result in real life, right? We don't know how the, mm-hmm. the jury's going to find it. But we always know the result. And how do you know that? Well, what happened the other day when the woman discharged her firearm rather than her taser, how long did it take for looting, rioting, burning things to happen? before a single bit of mm-hmm. data came out about it. They already right. knew what happened, right? And right. so air refreshener, you know what I'm talking about here, right? He got pulled over because he had an air refreshener hanging from his window. That's yeah. not actually yeah. what happened. in yeah, that and was the ori- one of the original narratives. Yeah. You know, like, like Jacob Blake was going to break up a fight.
1: Well, no, mm-hmm. he had a, like, you know, he couldn't. What is, uh, so if it's not the air freshener, Was it the tags? What's the what's the replacement? uh, I think it was
2: tags. Yeah, I think that that's why. And he had and they pulled him over for tags. I think and and there was like open open warrants, and then he uh, he tried to flee, and and what happened happened. And you know the woman Mm -hmm. has been arrested, and she'll be charged charged charged
1: with
0: second degree manslaughter, I believe.
1: Which sounds pretty uh, strong uh, and and perhaps indicative of, of the climate. And we've said this before yeah. about Derek Chauvin. I mm-hmm. my reaction to that um, case was and is that, that um, case the Dante Wright
0: um, situation, yeah, the shooting there. Yeah. Um,
1: we shouldn't be firing weapons into cars to execute warrants, even from people who are fleeing them. Like as a general thing, this is really bad you policing. Mean, you mean you mean uh, tasers? Uh, we- uh, firing weapons. Yes. Well, but she thought she it, had a taser. taser. Yeah, taser yeah. is a weapon. Yeah, we shouldn't be firing weapons. We don't into fire cars. a taser.
2: That's why I was wondering what you're talking nah,
1: about. You shouldn't pull the <laughs> fucking trigger, you pedantic cunt, on a <laughs> why weapon. Why are you such an into... asshole right now, Matt? Can I ask that question? Is there a reason because that you're, you're an, an asshole? You're fucking busting my balls. I'm so not if, busting like, your you're balls. Like you're trying your to figure out you're how pulling stupid you the are. About trigger this. on a Good fucking God. weapon, asshole. You're pulling the trigger on a weapon in a car. Okay, but the, other, you understand there's that there's another a substantial person.
2: difference between a handgun and a taser, right? I do. Okay. Tazers good. Then also, then let's go on then. Let's continue. Tasers
1: also can kill people. Yeah, I mean people not can frequently, die, but yes. Not frequently, <laughs> but it can happen. I yeah. this is uh, this is bad policing in any hand. But generally there's a hand, hold on, hold on, hold on. It's bad policing from your opinion.
2: You don't think policing should operate this way, but is it bad yeah. policing by Department's policy: If someone is trying to escape, you're not allowed to tase them. Or if they're, you know, getting into the car and struggling. In my I don't opinion, know. You're okay. right. It, it is it
1: is my opinion. In my opinion, it is bad policing to fire a taser into and fire. I'm sorry, the morning hand Rule <laughs> to pull the trigger. I love how much of an asshole you're being? Just because I was trying to clarify t- whether you meant the gun of a taser, but somehow this is <laughs> like a the nuclear reaction, uh, unbelievable. On a taser <laughs> yes. into a car on someone, even who is fleeing, um it, uh, uh, to. Flee or warrant. I think that's bad policing. I think it's bad policing on itself, and the, I mean, that's I, in yeah, and I, that's I, indicative I think that's relevant, of that's a relevant conversation to
0: have. In fact, it seems to me
1: that that's like the important
0: conversation to have, as opposed to oh my god, systemic racism. Like the, yeah, the conversation yeah, around policy and whether or not like armed agents of the state should be doing stops for registration or the dangly thing in your windshield at all, versus. If you're not driving erratically and putting other people in danger, like there's a photo that's snapped and there's a ticket that arrives at your house. And we we know where your car is and we can find it, right? We have some idea about what's going on here. And it's possible for us to punish you in various ways without sending people to stop you on the street. And there are various reasons why this ought to be the case, perhaps. Well, okay, let's- Maybe cops have some some more important things to do. Um, with respect to the kind of things that we might need them to do as a society, maybe having people stop you on active roadways in many instances, creating potentially dangerous situations that do occasionally lead to traffic accidents is also a bad idea. It's just not worth that. Well, well, uh, like, well here's baby. the thing.
2: I mean, it's going to happen. People, you're going to get pulled over for expired tax. That's it. It's just going to happen, right? But
0: I'm saying from a policy standpoint, like if we're talking about reforms, like that might be a reform that's worth discussing and exploring if we want to talk about how to avoid the possibility of this sort of thing happening at all.
2: Or, or the, you could not struggle with a police officer, which is probably a good well, way I mean, that's, to, to this that, is, too. This is but, certainly but, true, too. There's but, no uh, doubt about but, that. But the thing is, is that, you know, that's, it, it's not just someone like saying, all right, I'm going to walk away and getting tased. It's like getting an actual physical alterta- altercation with a police officer. Yeah. You have your taser, that's what it's for, right? I'm not saying that that's what it should be, but that's, I mean, when I was trying to clarify, Matt, of like, good policing is like, is it, you mean good policing by the book or good policing by what you think it should be? And I don't think that's a small point, is that, you know, I can understand that people think that, like, you know, don't do that. Just let it go. It's like, it's the same thing that people, that police do when they don't have high-speed chases because it's just not worth the, the the trouble and the danger that you're putting somebody in so i totally mm-hmm. understand that but when i look at the woman like if she had actually imagine she had tased the guy and he died which mm-hmm. does happen right people have heart mm-hmm. attacks whatever it, it's it, like that sort of thing you know she was thought she was following i imagine uh police procedures she made an
0: unbelievably department yeah, we don't know
2: horrible mistake and it does appear to be a mistake i mean because that's some amazing foresight to scream taser taser, taser i'm gonna tase you while this my gun, shooting uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's like yeah it, lo- the woman looked like she was panicking right and that's not good for a police officer for any reason there, there was like-
0: afterwards tells the story like everyone is shocked that they just heard the gun discharge yes. she says oh my god i shot him i shot him the other cop looks at her and is like what no yeah. you didn't yeah
2: yeah. Um, I mean, they, it's a hugely tragic error, right? Totally. And, and, all the way around. But I, I just, I, I wonder in a way, and this is something that, you know, people would choke at and say, like, how could you say such a thing? I just wonder what we'd be doing by putting this woman in jail for 20 years or something. I mean, it's, it's it was mm-hmm. a tragic, tragic mistake in she should be fired, she should be punished. There should be, I just worry about the over correction because like hey don't burn down the target we've got this woman on the stake and i just that's I a weird it's a weird I, agree. I, think, to I think
1: it's i think it's bad policing and my my allergy towards uh use of force uh or my sensitivity towards it might be stronger than others mm-hmm. um but also and we mentioned this on a recent podcast as well like The thirst for vengeance in the criminal justice system is part of the problem, as is. And it's very important to point this out, as is the overcorrection, generally speaking, of protection for police officers in use of force situations, which can translate into qualified immunity. It can translate into, uh, you know, exaggerated deference towards police claims Or, you know, in many use of force situations, in fact, they just repealed a law in Maryland a few days ago over the objections of their uh, Republican governor, Larry Hogan, they had a a longstanding police bill of rights law. It's sort of like a proto um, Blue Lives Matter law that allows police officers after use of force incidents to not be interviewed. Right. You Mm -hmm. see this, all the Blue Lives Matter laws are relevant or things Mm -hmm. that are similar to that. They do that. They're like, okay, you don't have to to talk to anybody yeah. for a while. And it's <laughs> worth pointing out that this woman is also, from what I understand- She was the uh, former head of the union, s- right? Former head of the police union there, which is which have not been good actors for a long time, I think, in, in American uh, policymaking, much like uh, teachers' unions. So well, all of that- em-
0: Public employee unions in general like have a tendency to function in that way. They're not, they're not looking right. after the interests of the taxpayers, broadly speaking.
2: FDR was right about that one thing. And people target them very selectively (laughs) because the a lot of people who are kind of you know strong union folks have been going after the police unions, rightfully so, in the Mm -hmm. in the in the past year. And just to be clear, I'm not saying this woman shouldn't be punished at all. It's just you know Mm -hmm. you try to prevent recidivism and you know kind of extract the criminal instinct from people by punishing them, and it's like that's not what's happening here. So I just don't know. And and you've said this a lot, Matt, of just like being really kind of skittish about anyone ever being punished and, I, and that's a bastardization of what you're saying but the instinct was actually awakened in me in a couple of one time uh, the other day when I was listening to Wondery's podcast on Maria Butina the, uh, Russian so-called Russian spy who interviews, I think somebody that maybe you've interviewed, Matt, the guy from overstock.com, Patrick Byrne, the libertarian, uh, who talks libertarian stuff in the podcast, which is funny, but he's it, a little bit nutty. He's a little Patrick. bit <laughs> nutty. And it's a six episode <laughs> thing, but on the four, I think the, I think they're I've released the fourth one now, but in that episode, they recount her being arrested by the FBI and what happened to her in DC when she went to that underground horrible place in DC. And she's describing what that jail is like. And it Mm. is inhuman that somebody, anybody has to experience that kind of stuff. And it's just this woman who, and from the gist of the podcast now, I don't know how it ends. There's two more to go. I don't think it's black and white, but clearly not a super spy (laughs) by any means. And the government lied about something and basically like called her a prostitute, literally. Tartar as a sex Mm -hmm. trafficker, as as they tend to do, weirdly enough. And they acknowledged it and were, like, upbraided by the judge, who was like, how dare you do this? And, you know, she's in, like, a place that is, like, literally rat-infested. And there's, like, Mm. a woman who, like, has her period and no one will give her anything. She's, like, smearing blood on the wall. It's just insane. And I'm like, why are we treating people? I mean, even if she was the, you know, Alger Hiss of her generation— I mean, in this unbelievably inhuman way,
1: and former you know, Fifth Column guest uh, Matt Tybee, has a piece on that. I think today or yesterday, as on well. Worth checking out. Uh, is, yes, uh, in specifically, uh,
2: was, is it in re- response to that podcast? Oh, I wonder. I should check that. out. I don't
1: know. Uh, I, I hmm. uh, was skimming through it, but but he was just holding that up as a. I think he was more in the context of the Matt uh, Gates thing of how quickly people will drop any pretense to caring about due process if it lines uh, up the case no. the case fits a broader narrative that is yeah. useful at the moment for Absolutely. people. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Well th- I think the the broader the broader point that you're that you're making, I think both of you are making, is this this, this delta between being sort of punitively minded and being reform oriented, yeah. especially when it comes to like criminal justice reform and dealing with the misconduct um, and in some cases the errors of law enforcement mm-hmm. and the question becomes whether it's more important to us as a, as a society to have you know a, our pound of flesh after something happens that outrages us that disappoints us profoundly or to see reforms happen that actually improve outcomes into the future and save lives and by save lives, I mean the lives of citizens who interact with the police. And yes, the lives of police officers and their families, which are utterly disrupted and destroyed by having sort of inadequately defined policies in some cases, or poorly designed policies, um, or having them engage in generally like over policing in, in circumstances that lead to bad outcomes. And that people who don't wake up in the morning thinking, I'm going to go kill me a black man or I'm just going to go kill somebody today who in many instances, like genuinely join law enforcement because they want to like serve their community and protect it. Like we, we may have to choose between being punitive and reform minded in order to obtain a goal. And I, I think that orientation matters a great deal. And if we embraced it, I think we would think about a lot of these cases in very different ways, as opposed to what we're presently doing, which is, Responding to these cases, in many instances, in an explicitly political way, framing them in political ways, which are not a function of the evidentiary standard, and ignoring the fact that like this thing with the taser and the firearm, like this has happened before. And I'm not referring yeah, to the a number of fail station too. and the black dude. I mean, in 2019, there was a, a pretty prominent case. In yeah. That was the bar, What was the, the Bart one intelli- you're talking
2: about though? The Bart
0: station was in, Bart. That was also, it was a Michael B. Jordan's like breakout film. Um, he did a film about as well. Oh yeah, huh? yeah. It's great. Yeah. He's, he's a guy. It's pretty good. Oh, I haven't seen it. Um, and um, you know, but there was another one in 2019 it, interrogation room where a guy freaks out and he uh, uh, one officer grabs him and there's a tussle and another officer is in the room and believes he pulls his taser and fires it directly into the man's chest and near point-blank range, the guy survives. Um, and is eventually prosecuted for the crime he was being interrogated for and locked away in jail. Um, the police officer gets off. You might want to give him a
2: pass after that, by the way. Yeah, well, you kind the police of get officer out of jail gets off. For, yeah, I mean, the, the guy he, should, uh, not tried the police to sue officer. Gonna, like, the guy shouldn't be prosecuted yeah. for whatever he was brought in for. It's like, you know what? We kind of fucked yeah. up. Go. Just be good. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, he still got,
0: still got prosecuted. Um, the police officer got off. Oh, also, the, but the racial dynamic isn't there. Like, these are ostensibly two white guys, whatever the hell that means. And it doesn't fit. Mm. And as a result, we don't pay any attention to it. But there's barely, I mean, there's barely two years between these two incidents. And the fact that that's the case, like, doesn't seem to matter. Wh- wh- like, what The I- fact that, that actual active racial bias is not what's at play here. And even this conversation about systemic racism just seems completely divorced from the conversation about what we actually need to fix. And I just don't think the calls to, like, abolish the police and <laughs> destroy the system and rebuild it from the ground up because policing is like derived from uh, the slave patrols Damn. that used to exist. Like QAnon has nothing on these people, yeah. like in their ability and determination to believe things that there is no evidence, direct evidence to support, and to proliferate narratives that are like completely conspiratorial kind of bonkers. A a
2: tragedy is only worth mentioning if it's politically useful these days. But on on the defunding the police thing, I mean, imagine this. I mean, I don't think we have to even worry about defunding the police in Minneapolis anymore. Because if you or I fuck up at our job, royally fuck up, we're not going to jail. I mean, imagine that trying to recruit somebody this mm. like, see these, there's two cops in the force before, they're both in prison now, and they thought they were doing the thing that they weren't, that they ended up not doing. It's like, again, none of this is to vindicate or apologize for the people and say what they did was yeah. right, but like, that's a major fuck up. But as you've pointed out, and the New York Times pointed out, I think were, they found 20 cases of people being shot when they, they, uh, there was a taser mistake. Even 20 mm. cases, that's a lot. And so it, it's, it, it happens, right? You know it, it's, 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 you know, it happens enough that you can dig up 20 cases that are just in, you know, wire service uh, reports mm-hmm. that I, a lot of whom, as you point out, don't, a lot of which don't have racial dynamics at play. And I just can imagine, like, you've been in the force for 26 years or whatever and maybe have an unblemished record, maybe you don't, but this fuck-up happens, and you're going to spend the next decade of your life in prison And I would never, ever, ever take that job, particularly when it doesn't pay well and it's dangerous. So
1: that's a that's a huge thing that's happening right now. I mean, of of people who are retiring early and uh, forces that are drawing down, uh, especially in impacted places, and some of those places are you know have history of of troubled policing and mm-hmm. troubled relationship with community <laughs> minneapolis instance, instance, shit
0: policing was coming to mind but yeah
1: uh, <laughs> you know i'm trying to be nice uh, in minneapolis yeah. i would say shit policing in albuquerque new mexico without any any qualification mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. just in places where where stuff's been I'm controversial some ba- places yeah 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 uh, baltimore la i but also it's important to to recognize that as we are reacting to national conversations national political conversations about this and being dazzled by phrases or you know irritated by phrases like defund the police or irritated by the racialization of things stuff's happening you know in addition to the maryland thing that that i mentioned before new mexico Mm -hmm. uh abolished qualified immunity Mm -hmm. last week that's a huge step that's pretty great and and It's not just that stuff is happening that is at the behest of, you know, uh, reformers who are wearing socks with pigs on on them with uh, police (laughs) hats. Reformers are happening at the behest of police officers. There's been an entire conversation that has been almost un. Uh, Not talked about in the national Mm -hmm. media for the last half a decade where people who are absolutely on the inside of criminal justice, the prosecutors, the judges, the cops, everybody is like, hey, you know what? Like, let's go away from the stop and frisk and the comp stat. Let's go away from prosecuting people for petty offenses. Let's Mm -hmm. find ways to not, you know, spend all of our time on Lucy's like there is an, an insider. Yeah. Reform thing. The governor of Kentucky signed a law last week. I believe it's a Democratic governor, but Kentucky is not a Democratic state uh, necessarily, but uh, mostly ending no knock raids. Mm-hmm. Okay. You want to save some lives? Legalize drugs, stop no knock raids, get rid of civil asset forfeiture. We have been and libertarians right. have been and civil libertarians have been talking about this shit for many decades now. But those things are actually happening, not in a, you know, a perfectly mappable, wonderful way, but it's been happening nonetheless. And I, I think it's been under covered because it doesn't fit the mania of the moment of whatever yeah. the story is at any given time. But we should be latching on to those and trying to get more of them on the local and on the national level. There's things that we can do nationally to make civil asset forfeiture go away. This That's mm-hmm. legalized theft by cops. That yeah. happens still all over the country. It's crazy making. But that introduces all kinds of really, really twisted incentives. And Cops know this. Good cops know this. So let's get together with the good cops and start talking about the stuff that they want to do um, Mm -hmm. rather than getting all rabbit holed on a bunch of other things, which people would rather do because they love stupid ass political conflict. There
2: is a a breaking news alert that Uh just came in that uh, I will read it to you, Camille. I'm eager to Uh. hear your reaction. Uh, Breaking news from The New York Times. A House committee voted for the first time to endorse creating a commission to consider providing Black Americans with reparations for slavery, yeah. so that was just voted. Uh, find, the commission it, figuring it out. F- yeah, it's gonna, commission it's,
1: plus reparations means going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, thanks
2: Coleman for fucking this one up. Uh, you went up there and look what happened.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you're,
3: you're beaten by Tonawasis
2: codes. Yeah, so that's going to happen. So there you go. I actually want to
0: say something about that briefly. Um, and But before we get there, just to put a, bo- a, a bow on this conversation, I think you're absolutely right, Matt, to underscore the progress that's being made. I think what incenses me is the fact that we are making that progress in a context that is oftentimes so hysterical, and it is attaching a very high cost to that progress that need not be there. And at the same time, like creating a bunch of really counterproductive and expensive and material ways, I mean, in terms of treasure and lives and lower cost of uh, lower quality of life for a number of people in our society with a kind of like political animus that is just completely unnecessary. Like there are great bipartisan reasons to pursue police reform and ways to do it that just are not hysterical and are not rooted in this like racialist mania and there's this rather absurd hysterical panic. And there, there's nothing else to call it but that. When I see people, um, I saw today, like someone made a post about their 16-year-old child asking them or 15 year old t- child asking them if it was like, okay, if it was safe for them to go outside and walk their dog. Um, <laughs> so sensibly because they're concerned that they'll be murdered by the police and how it breaks their heart to not be able to say to their child with confidence that they'll be okay to have to tell them the quote unquote the truth that they're at grave risk of being murdered by the fucking
2: police. Yeah, and it, it's, it's just dangerous it's to obscene, walk your dog in the South side of Chicago. That's for sure.
0: Maybe she lives there. Like it's an obscene yeah. lie. It just isn't true. And and I just don't think that sort of hysteria is at all useful. And I am someone who thinks that it is absolutely the case that if a citizen dies in the custody of police or in an interaction with police and they are unarmed, 98% of the time somebody didn't do their job right and only one of those parties is fucking working. That is my contention even with Chauvin and Floyd, it seems rather obvious to me that there were things that could have been done, even if he overdosed and died, that would have given him higher odds of getting out of that circumstance alive and given law enforcement the opportunity to go on doing their jobs and living their lives. And that certainly seems to be the case with this stop, having just looked at the video for a little bit. Like there were three of you there, like, how did this happen? How did this go so badly? Like, it's a bad outcome. And it should outrage us, but it should outrage us in a way that, like, focuses the mind and makes us actually want to fix things. And on the reparations thing, I, I actually watched the other day, Um, I had not seen it, and someone uh in the, the fifth column clubhouse room actually recommended it, Glenn Lowry and Hitch having a debate about oh. reparations- it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing.
3: Who's on my I side? I imagine the Kitch
0: is, is arguing pro, pro,
2: right? Pro reparations. Yeah, I would imagine that. Yeah. So. yeah, And, that Glenn, makes sense. and
0: Glenn, is, Glenn is so fucking good, so elegant, always been so great. Gosh. Mm-hmm. I, actually, I just called him eloquent. You see what I did there? Yeah. I didn't say, I didn't say Chris is eloquent because he's no. obviously not. Yeah. Um, That's but, Brit. um, Glenn, like, gives this opening when he talks about reparations, say that, you know, I, I don't want to be here making this case. I don't do this with any great pleasure. You know, I, however, think that reparations is a, is a bad look and he lays out his case and I think, The case he makes there is still one that is worth considering and worth evaluating and is still largely correct. The only thing I would change about it is I'm just, I'm less in line with the framing of us and our people and the things that need to happen. But I definitely am in line with the perspective that to the extent there are ramifications, like his from the context, the historical context that's created certain kinds of patterns of racial disparities in our society that can be attached to foul, discriminatory, racist policies that existed in this country, all the way back to chattel slavery. Like, that's something that we should think about. There's a difference. But it's something that you can't fix by just stroking a check well, like ever it, I think ever.
2: it's it's gotten worse now than ever, because I mean when you're talking about Hitchens and Lowry, I imagine that's probably twenty plus years ago, oh yeah, and the 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 frame of the debate now. Is actually mm-hmm. kind of terrifying in one way. So the New York Times article about this that you click through to um, has a bunch of quotes from William Darity Jr., who's a yes, professor of public Sandy Darity uh, at, yeah. at, at Duke, right? Duke. And so c- yep. quoted as ba- Baby Bonds at yeah. some length, right? And this is the shocking thing because it's not. Like, okay, we need to, like, because the, the bill says a public apology, a national apology, right? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of like, okay, I get that, right? I mean, you can, that's, that makes a, a certain it's, amount of it's sense. It's just happened a it, bunch of times. It's happened a bunch of times. So. It's not going to do anything, <laughs> like over right? Over and over again. Over and over, it's going to do it. But this yeah. is taking on... literally, like, every
0: president since LBJ has probably done that. But maybe before. I said it when I, I woke know. up
2: this morning to nobody in particular. <laughs> just a generalized apology. I'm but so sorry. This is the thing... That is different about it, that is actually terrifying, because what it is, is actually a huge, the idea and Darity's idea is a huge restructuring of the American economy, right? Uh So Mr. Darity's vision of reparations primarily focuses on closing the wealth gap between Mm -hmm. African Americans and white people, something that he estimates would take $10 trillion or more in government funds. So this is a serious person at a serious university has written a serious book, being quoted in the most serious p- newspaper in America, that we are going to wipe out. Very generous use of the word serious there. Well, yes, it it, it, <laughs> it, it thinks it's quite serious. We're going to wipe yeah. out disparities, uh, economic disparities, which apparently uh, it's just it takes a check and that's it. I didn't know that we could do that.
1: But dude, dude didn't you hear that the American Rescue Plan cut poverty in oh, half? Yeah, it was so, on the like, it
2: was in the, uh, the Washington Post. We, we're headline. already done. Yeah. Half of it's already gone. That's great. It's unbelievable. Like that kind of thing is that it's not just bad social policy and and Mm -hmm. creates horrible resentments and all the things that people actually don't think about too much, but it's unbelievably bad economic policy because they believe that there's a long tail on it. They believe that this one thing will create a long-term ripple effect that will produce wealth that has been stolen or taken or prevented from accumulating in certain communities and that is mm-hmm. just literally like economic illiteracy at its highest level. I can't even imagine that anyone would actually think that.
1: I want to point out that uh, our current United States ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas Greenfield, uh, I believe it was today, said that, um, and this is in regards to whether the US is really uh, good enough to join the UN's Human Rights Council. Uh-huh.
2: Good God. <laughs>
1: here we go let's get a pause to see how how long it took Moynihan <laughs> oh, to Jesus snort there fucking uh, uh, that oh, we have to acknowledge our own failures and her quote was white supremacy is weaved into our founding documents and principles it's not true so, I don't know that we've, you know, maybe
0: to people's satisfaction covered the reparations things. We'll get to it another time, perhaps. But I know, Moynihan, you and I have both watched some of this uh, new HBO documentary. Oh, Jesus uh, what is yeah. it? Destroy All Brutes, I believe it's yes. called. So, four-part, quote-unquote, documentary series. And In which, incidentally, uh, the, the who, title of that
2: is not a quote from some colonialist nightmare. It's from a Joseph Conrad novel. So it's <laughs> actually from a novel. It's not even from yeah. a, a real. It's not a real yeah. quote. So yeah, yeah. Sorry. the natural well,
1: born American, Joseph Conrad. Oh yeah, God. yeah.
0: And um, it, it's uh, it's the same the same gentleman who brought us um, "I'm Not Your Negro," the James Baldwin uh, documentary, which. I mean is wonderful in some ways because james baldwin just when he speaks and it is as like lyrical Mm -hmm. but in many respects i mean just these completely contrived quotes um that just frustrated me to no end while watching it and this presentation of baldwin as this one-dimensional person who always had this one view and what i've always loved about baldwin is the complexity of his work and the difficult themes that he wrestled with and the difficult reality that he was multiple people at multiple instances in in his life for various reasons that are worth wrestling with, he robs him of all of the nuance to make him serve his own purposes. Mm -hmm. And unsurprisingly, this one-trick pony does exactly the same thing when it comes to the history of the United States and the presentation of all of America's ills and his manifesto, which is this film, is about uh, white supremacy and its sort of core mechanisms of functioning, destroying the various peoples it's come into contact with, contaminating the continent of Africa uh, and various other places through colonialism, and being ultimately fundamentally responsible for like all of the things that have taken place in history. Mm-hmm. This is it's kind of a this exercise in root causes that arbitrarily stops at the like Mayflower and shit coming to America when you could trace it back even further. Like what is the ultimate fucking failure in our society? But it's also a rather like simple-minded exercise to imagine that this is all there is, that the people who were subjugated, abused, brutalized in many instances, like didn't come out of a milieu of subjugation, brutalization, and awfulness that the people who lived in the places where Europeans traveled to, like the Americas, uh, and I mean, you know, South and North America, weren't involved in and engaged in a lot of the same categories of awfulness that a lot of these other populations were involved in before anyone met them. That they were subjugating one another because they're humans, and that's what we did to each other. That they were enslaving one another, that there was Sub privations that were taking place, like all of those things were happening. And it creates a very complicated story that's like worth understanding. And our trajectory to get from there to where we are now, a society that wholesale rejects a lot of those horrible, awful things that took place before, that universally recognizes the awfulness of slavery, is like remarkable. And to think that, well, because our origins are tainted by awfulness, everything about the current allocation of resources and power is just fucking terrible, is obscene. And it's ahistorical to pretend that all of the awfulness was only concentrated in one place and is a (laughs) manifestation of whiteness and that everything that has been done is to protect and defend whiteness. If that's the case, how has America, for example, like lifted the standard of living for every community that has come to call it home, however they got here, under whatever circumstances. And that's even true of the African who was brought here in fucking chains. They have thrived here relative to their populations anyplace else in the world, which is not to suggest that there aren't problems that need to be addressed, but it does suggest that there's something remarkable about this particular experiment for all of its shortcomings. And the people who want to destroy it and scrap it and start over, the people who are obsessed with talking about its defects, absent appreciating the things that make it remarkable, you shouldn't listen to them. They're selling you a foul bill of goods. They're selling you a pernicious fiction. It's all fire and brimstone with no hope of heaven. And I don't know why anybody wants that bullshit.
2: I don't think anyone does, actually. I think that they commission these things and few people watch them. But, um... I think because the ratings on this, I think, were pretty low. Um, but it's you know, good.
0: It's it's actually really bad. Filmmaking. So it so is he- shit.
2: here's the thing about this is that uh, I-, I watched this at your behest, and you fucking ruined my day because of it. Thanks. Um, <laughs> I got through like 45 minutes of the first one, and I was like pulling my hair out. But the amazing thing about it is when we always remember when people are denouncing. Fox News, OAN, Newsmax, all these bozo fucking channels that are full of bozo people making bozo comments, and that they live in a universe that is just made up, in which they sort of create things whole cloth and ignore the things that their side does that, you know, are bad, blah, blah, blah. You know the routine. Mm -hmm. What we don't often point out is that this is literally everybody in media everywhere. All the time, right? Mm-hmm. This documentary, if one can call it that, is such a piece of shit. I mean, and I, I, I mean, it is, I saw 45 minutes of it, and I was gasping that I couldn't believe that this thing had actually been approved. This is insane, prop like, Soviet-style propaganda. And I texted you about this in the very first scene. There is a, a Seminole tribe in Florida, the glorious Seminole, and they're talking as mm-hmm. a Seminole woman, uh, speaking, uh, you know, English like she's from Connecticut or something, uh, historically <laughs> accurate, talking to yeah. a group of Black people. And those Black people were, were meant to assume, if you know about the First and the Second Seminole Wars in that period, that were maroons. They were uh, runaway slaves that came to Florida and lived amongst mm-hmm. the Seminole. And there is a moment, just at the very beginning. This is the setting the tone for this for this thing where she says he warns the the, the runaway slave warns that the white man is coming. And they're like we're going to stay here and she's like no you can come we're family. They just want to steal our land. It is like literally the most racially it's like, you know, we wanted to they're going to steal our land and like you've been you're like family to us. So, knowing a little something about this, I figured what's the easiest way of disputing this for somebody who's just watching, just watching mm. this, you know, just turning this on and saying, oh my God, you just go to the simplest place, right? So you just go to Wikipedia and I'm going to read you this. This is accurate too, because I, this is, historically the black Seminoles lived mostly in distinct bands near the Native American Seminole. Some were held as slaves, particularly of Seminole leaders. Uh, had, <laughs> but the black Seminoles what? had more freedom than the slaves uh, held in the south, um, et cetera. But, you know, this goes on. And um, there is a whole thing. This is like the sort of the the white people coming and screwing everything up. And this is the first, I think, after the first Seminole War. Conflict arose in the territory because the transplanted Seminole had been placed on land allocated to the Creek, who had had a practice of chattel slavery. (laughs) There was increasing (laughs) pressure from both Creek and pro-Creek Seminole for the adoption of Creek model of slavery for Black Seminole. Creek slavers, Mm. and it goes on about the slavery, etc. That is really amazing so josh hartnett the actor comes out of nowhere and he's the, the evil embodiment white, of white supremacy yeah, he, he cuts somebody's head off <laughs> yeah. literally and he says yeah. um he's a time-traveling racist murderer. yes it's an amazing
0: and he's like a jock
2: murderer He like looks like he played lacrosse it's literally true but you know yeah. and he's like i'm looking for my slaves i'm looking and like you have my property and the woman says you call human beings property and it's like did you uh. know, did you not know that the seminoles <laughs> had slaves did you not know that or are you just gonna f- ignore it and it's the inconvenience—it is so freaking crazy the, the, the incredibly dishonest thing comes up when uh they have the trump quote he's like they're they're immigrants coming to america and he's like they're not people they're animals And it cuts out the bit about Ms. Thirteen, where he's talking about (laughs) Ms. Thirteen being animals because they do the really bad stuff, right? And Trump's a a loser, and this whole thing is a you know massively overplayed. But it's not that's not the right quote, right? So you establish Mm -hmm. pretty quickly what these people are are doing. But there's so much of this stuff that's just not true, made up quotes, by the way. The whole Pocahontas thing and her Mm father—that quote is totally made up. That's not real. That's completely apocryphal. And you know how you can tell? And I'll end on this. Because the, the quote is, and I'm saying uh, this from memory, when John Smith, right? It's in the in, you know Pocahontas thing, uh, comes to uh, Virginia and is going to take all their land. And it says, you know, we've fed you, we've done this stuff. And this is the quote. Tell me if you think this is real. It says, why are you trying to take through violence and force what we will give yes. you through love? 100% yeah, true. That's that's b- how absolute talk. bullshit. And it's like, it's like oh my God, these ecological uh, warriors, this like proto-Greenpeace group was just sitting there and they were like, we're going to love you. I'm going to like love you so hard that like till you, you're, I'll, go, I'll go cross-eyed. Pocahontas is here, it's going to be amazing. And it's like, well, no, we just like killing people. That's what we're really into. Yeah. And the, it is not even a potted history. It is an absolute abomination. And it's embarrassing that HBO actually paid obviously a shitload of money for that because they paid josh hartnett and the reenactments are pretty elaborate so did, did josh hartnett actually accept money for that role because i,
0: I think he's probably mm-hmm. used it as like uh sort of his duty as a white man i to probably fill gave, that he role better
2: and, have given it yeah. to the the yeah. nearest seminal person that he should been. give that shit to me <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> i just wanted to briefly mention um i had a piece uh today that talks about some of the stuff um and it's it built on. Uh, Yeah. Uh, And it it builds on some of what we were talking about in a previous episode about what happens when you do a Google News search on the phrase systemic racism. And I just want to read you one headline. And granted, it's of an opinion piece in Mm -hmm. The Oregonian, which actually used to be a really good newspaper. And this is co written by a city councilor in Gresham, Oregon, where my aunt and uncle live. This is the headline Low alcohol taxes. Speaking of Indians, low alcohol (sighs) taxes uphold <laughs> systemic racism
3: of course what? they do yeah <laughs> yeah no
0: I don't Go on, now <laughs> everything upholds systemic racism <laughs> <laughs> he's a trap
3: so
2: uh, <laughs> regressive taxes on poor drinkers are, yes. are fighting against white supremacists yes yes the yes. fuck is wrong Honestly, with these people like,
0: comic <laughs> comic pizza has nothing on these this shit people- <laughs> The same. Common pieces it's probably got kids down bananas. there like,
2: compared to this shit. Oh, my.
0: Like, <laughs> are you serious? I mean, seriously. So, so few people like believe insane QAnon madness. Yeah. The, this ideology, woke white supremacy, craziness, like is. It's kind of demented. It's, <laughs> is, but it's, it's foundational now. It is a critical component of American politics, and it is a core element of what the Democratic Party is selling at this point. Like, it is the whole of the reason for this push for equity, which, I mean, we talked last week about how this is manifesting itself in healthcare. The CDC and NIH and various local municipalities are like pushing for equity-based healthcare. This is a discipline that is supposed to be like the, the the raison d'etre here, like first do no harm. That's the creed. That's how that's supposed to work. Yeah. Are you not thinking about this electing to institute a philosophical commitment to what is effectively a kind of shared scarcity? Like we have to focus on how to reapportion apportion The success, but also sort of the failure, the safety and the (laughs) the the life saving medical treatments that we can offer, and also the suffering. But one thing you mentioned maroons, and I'm remembering when I learned in like a couple of recent years about like the Jamaican maroons, which is a a population in Jamaica, um, who were descended from um these these freed slaves. But Jamaican maroons, like it's not just that they were these. Old fighters who got away from the slavers and fled to the mountains to live while slavery was still intact in the Americas, continuing to attack them and to plague the British colonialists to the point where the British had to seek a treaty with the Maroons. The treaty with the Maroons, which they went into, required them to take free runaways back Mm -hmm. and also enlisted them. As slave catchers, it was their job to go out and capture runaway slaves, take them back to the fucking plantation. They developed, there is evidence... That there was, it was among a t- some it was a tough of them job a contempt, <laughs> a genuine contempt for the slaves who didn't have the good sense to get away on some Kanye West shit. Yeah, talking about yeah. that sound like a choice. Yeah, that's it's like the maroon perspective.
2: <laughs> wow. like, that's what they were doing. Maybe Kanye was like, talking about I- the maroons. <laughs> he actually is so much smarter than we thought. <laughs> <laughs> but my thing is, my thing is, like
0: the 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 expectation here is from a lot of people on on the left who believe these things that everyone who is critical of their perspective on like the centrality of white supremacy and the importance of talking about this is interested in selling a counter narrative that is sort of equally fictitious, that America is pure and honest and good and has never done anything wrong. And that's not true. Like I want to to talk about the nuance and the complexity and the difficulty of all of this. And I also want to talk about how we actually fix problems and, you know, bemoaning white supremacy like white supremacy is is not really the functional reason why baltimore has kids graduating with gpas of Mm 0.049 and being like in the 52nd percentile in their graduating class but
2: i don't think they would say high school
0: who can like barely fucking read and these schools are functional the teachers are being paid handsomely for doing shit work like passing kids who can barely read, who have no prospects. And it is a total travesty and an outrage. And school systems are doing bullshit, like instituting anti-racist curriculums and renaming schools that were named for racists and imagining that this is somehow redressing these problems or addressing these problems in a way that is going to improve people's lives. And it is a lie. Yeah. It is an outright lie. It's a distraction. Um, and uh, I think it's absolutely dangerous and poisonous and based on all kinds of ahistorical madness in much the same way that anyone who is just interested in pursuing like American greatness conservatism or wants to institute some sort of patriotic educational policy is just, is an absolute lunatic, but that I don't even need to dress those people down. No, that, Y'all already sh- know yeah, that. And that's just so <laughs> rare these days,
2: by the way. I mean, we talk about the kind of counter narrative to that, that, you know, America, you know, you read these texts because America's never done anything wrong. It's like, those textbooks haven't existed for 50 years. And there might be some like bullshit Texas curriculum that makes national news and people freak out about, but I don't even think those textbooks say slavery was a great thing. And people are like, well, there's a textbook that frames slavery this way. It's like, oh, okay, one out of a, a bunch where somebody said something stupid. But of course, I think their argument is on Baltimore is obviously not, and you know this, and we've talked about this before, is that it is not that, I'm failing because I go to the John C. Calhoun School or because (laughs) white supremacy is all around me now, that it's the, you know, end of this, not at the end, it's the middle of this journey, to quote Lionel Trilling, of, you know, racism that started with coming here in shackles and it's a continuous process. Um, That Mm -hmm. is is a a slightly more appealing argument, but I still don't think it makes much sense. But the thing that I'll say, though, is that white supremacy thing, it actually is... It's what immediately indicates that somebody's either an idiot or full of shit. And the reason is, is because if you notice all of these pieces, whether the opinion piece that Matt pointed out, go Google, as Matt said, in Google News and you'll find all these things. But go to every one of these pieces and you notice two things about them. One is they don't define the terms. White supremacy is everything. It's everything that I don't like. It's not like what you'd think definitionally. it would be people that believe in the supremacy of the white race over other races, which is not what mm-hmm. they're talking about, which is what white supremacy is and should remain because it's accurate to the to the words contained in the description, right? So that's the first thing that doesn't happen. <laughs> the second thing is they never actually tell you what the white supremacist supremacist thing is, right? So it's like the math when you were a kid, like you have to show your work, right? Show your work so we know you didn't just do the fucking calculator, right? They're not showing the work or giving the answer. And you need to show the work of like, okay, so why is this? It's just a word, a phrase that shuts down debate. How You can't question it because to say what is white supremacist about this will be met with not a response. It'll be met with, aren't you serious? You don't know what is white. Like I saw someone making fun of... Uh, Pete Buttigieg said the highways in America are built on white supremacy or something. Now, uh, people made fun of this, right? And then somebody says, who read Robert Caro's book, chimes in and uh, makes a Robert Moses point. Which is true, right? But that's not all the highways, right? That's just what happened in New York. And that's widely known. And that book is, so many people that you know have read it because it's in multiple, I, th- I don't think it's high school classes, college classes, et cetera, widely known that the man did a lot of very, very shitty things, right? Those things happened. We acknowledge them. But that response of like, what, you don't know? That was like, how many, how many indie rock kids does it take to screw in a light bulb? What, you don't know? <laughs> it's like, you know, we're, t- we're <laughs> too cool to like, how do you not know this, right? And that is the thing is it starts with that premise that you should understand what this is because it is actually nothing, there is nothing there. There is no there there. You can go and say, you can do the uh, Google, as, as Matt says, systemic racism. Do the other thing and do the, the other trick, which is do white supremacy in quotes, because you need them right next to each other, and then yeah. choose something else. Comic books, television, <laughs> scams, <laughs> hockey. I mean, anything. You will find it. And that's when you know a phrase has no value when it's associated with literally everything. Because, well, it's all-encompassing. No, it's not. Life is more complicated than that, and you have to do the work. You have to show the work. Not do the work in the way is...
0: You have to do the work. No, you have to
2: do the work. (laughs) Like, you have to show me your work. Show that you actually know know know. what you're fucking talking about rather than throwing out phrases and putting something next to it and then dropping the mic and walking away. Because who would dare question that?
1: It's Mad Libs, uh, and I know we have to leave, but I want to read one tweet uh, from Tuesday from Congresswoman Ayanna Presley from uh, oh God Mas-Holia. Um She tweeted out, uh, it, "This is a perfect Mad Libs of exactly what Moynihan's talking about. You can't be anti-racist," she tweeted, "if you're anti." Fill in the Mad uh, Libs, the- student. Debt no cancellation. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah.
2: Just yeah. fill in the blanks. Yeah. It's crazy. You should do that it's on a local crazy. level. You can't be anti-racist if you agree with that new toll road that's being opened down the street. I mean, it's like <laughs> you can do that with like every every issue.
1: Oh god. And just oh to god. to speak out for for uh you know, highways and eminent eminent domain and whatnot and uh and adversely affecting uh poor minority communities. Um some must have been writing about that forever. And it's not just New York, exactly. it's also Los Angeles. The one oh five freeway is no, famously, yeah, famously yeah. went through Compton and went through South Central LA. Watts back when we used to call it Watts. And so if you want to like, oh, you don't know that. Well, here's the thing that hey, you don't know that you don't know that this power of eminent domain, where the government can take your stuff, including Joe Biden taking property of people who live along the border to extend the wall, which he did mm-hmm. this week on the wall that he was supposed to not continue building, which is that required and
2: all the Trump stuff because it was all on private property. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, and it's and it's a
0: worse deal because Mexico ain't even gonna pay for it now. <laughs> Mexico
1: ain't gonna pay for it. That's it's a worse deal. It's yeah. <laughs> giving it's a bad deal. Go look at who was arguing uh, for and against uh, in both the courtroom and in the uh, court of public opinion. The Kelo versus New London uh, Supreme Court decision fifteen years ago about eminent domain and the government's ability to seize private property uh, because they think they could make a better dollar out of it by giving it to, to somebody else, to another private White lady developer. Too, by the way, uh, white lady. Yeah, thanks. A, <laughs> uh, but like, it, it is the people making the argument that, and the, a, a white lady uh, who is lower middle class. Um, as were all the people in that neighborhood. And and the, and there's a, a great movie by our friends Ted Balaker, Courtney, who uh little pink house that uh, talk a lot about that. And there's a huge class component to that. Yeah. So you want to you want to like pretend like you've done all the work. Do the work about eminent domain and of the policies that predominantly democrats and liberals and progressive have been in favor of while the people that they hate have been against it or at least used to be against it they're going to all switch sooner rather than later on it it is a terrible story and it'll also get you closer to actually doing stuff to make that shit better hmm. <sighs> it's poor Sorry people it's
2: poor people <laughs> who get fucked over by the way that's Gosh. kind of the answer so every time we
0: we should we should go, but I, I'm like two headlines just because they're jumping out at me. Oh, One, no. I I see a tweet from someone uh, from earlier this week uh, saying none of the officers who are on the Brooklyn Center Police Department live in the community they serve, according to the mayor. It's like a tweet. Which I mean, what's the likelihood that if things were otherwise, if the police officers had lived close to this young man, that this would have prevented an officer from mistaking their
2: handgun for a taser.
0: Like how does that work exactly? Is Brooklyn Is what Brooklyn are we Center even talking a poor
2: about? uh enclave, I imagine so?
1: We have uh, in our Patreon uh, episode, which we'll hopefully be recording as soon as tomorrow night, we have a mm. really interesting email from a listener who lives in Brooklyn Center, Okay, Um, who's previously described himself as from Minneapolis, but he's like, I didn't think that anyone would know Brooklyn Center. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But like, add, add some pretty interesting, you don't know white uh, supremacy. Co- complicating context to but the story. But on that point, the only I'll reason I that that
2: ask that. is cops don't live in poor neighborhoods that they police and they don't live in rich neighborhoods that they police because they can't afford one Mm. and they Mm. don't want to live amongst the people they constantly arrest in the other, you know, how many (laughs) Manhattan cops live in Manhattan? Literally zero,
1: like zero. They all live in Staten Island or Long Island. <laughs> right? Well, we have some. Uh, NY... By the way,
2: I have to.
0: I'm going to respond this to this tweet. To an I'm going to throw, throw that insight in there. Moynihan, I'm stealing it okay. right now. Uh, Cups, uh, yeah, the rich true. neighborhoods. And NY, our NYPD
2: friend who sent me a bunch of messages, but I I've been like off Twitter for a while and I have to go respond to them tonight. But the la- last one was when this thing happened in Brooklyn Center. He it was something and I'm quoting from memory because it just popped up on my phone it said Minneapolis I give up. <laughs> and it's like oh, or I quit geez. or it's like this fuck it's like and his response is uh, presumably having had great conversations in the past is like cops are often just complete shitheads and do stupid things and uh it's gets exhausting when you try to defend and as a cop some of these people that are yeah and it just keeps happening you know i don't know does it keep happening or are we just keep paying attention to these these cases i mean this one i think is probably because it's right next door to to the floyd thing obviously i mean as
1: well, we've no, mentioned I mean, before, we mentioned before the we total number of ignoring this yeah i suppose the, not. We would be the total number attention of, to of, it because uh, of the racial dynamics yeah. so of police shootings uh, and police killings of civilians to the extent mm-hmm. that we know that all those numbers have been trending down for a long yeah, time very long time yeah. all long it, time. by yeah. a lot
0: the other headline, and it's not just a headline, it's the article, is about this story from yesterday um, in the New York Times, morning, another fallen officer, Capitol Police faced deepening crisis. Um, and this is a story about the officer who was killed after a car rammed into him, driven by a deranged young man who jumped out of that car with a, a knife. He was... Uh, had some affiliation with the Nation of Islam, and had been having some, it seems, some severe issues. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly like had all kinds of other awful things going on. And what I find really remarkable about this column is there is almost no mention of race in the article. When this attack was literally, it was explicitly motivated by race. Like, the man was a member of the Nation of Islam. Which is a racist organization. He was concerned... (laughs) Yeah. yeah, He was concerned about the, the, the plight and the predation of Black people in America. Like, this attack was, in fact, inspired by those concerns. And there is no mention in this very long piece about the motivation of the murderer, about the fact that this is actual racist violence that is being perpetrated in America. And in fact the only degree to which race or racism is referenced is with respect to an extended treatment of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, which I should mention is completely fucking different. It isn't the same thing at all. It's a rather like insane way to go about covering something like this. And I can imagine a circumstance where you're saying, well, you know what? We're covering the death of this police officer and that human tragedy is what we want to focus on. Not the killer, not their depraved motives. But if that were the case, why are we talking about January 6th? Why are you talking about officers who were in some cases injured But specifically also mentioning the officers who weren't only injured were sometimes called racist names by the crowd. It's insane. And it literally says nearly 140 police officers were injured, while many more suffered less visible harm, such as being targeted with racist slurs by the mob. Well, I'll tell you, when a racist drives a fucking car into you and murders you because... They're inspired by wait, racism. Wait, wait, hold on. Camille. That seems
2: important. They, they said when the the officers were targeted by racist slurs from the mob. Slurs. Okay. Well, I can't. I can, I can, can believe 6th. that, right? Because it's I can, you know, people do things like mm-hmm. that. Um, yes. Do we have any evidence of that? I don't know because we've so. I've, much have yet video. <laughs> to see
0: the video of that happening. There are certainly police officers who claim that it is true. And again, I can imagine it's possible. I've seen some disgusting stuff, like the dude who had like the Auschwitz T-shirt mm-hmm, that was there. Mm-hmm. Like these are, there were some really bad people in that crowd who I can imagine saying racist they things. They were like some Nazis. It yeah. is very there telling, I yeah. think, that you haven't seen video of that sort of thing. I think people might have seen. That's what I don't know. So
2: there might be some. If it had existed, oh yeah, we might. Yeah. So like that ProPublica thing where they literally stitched together all of the video, Mm -hmm. which is so crazy and like such a technological marvel, and they should get an award for it. Yeah, I didn't see, and I think it would have been flagged. And to the point about this yesterday, I was there while the funeral was happening at the Capitol, and and. I was back behind the you know big walls that they've put up to prevent people from going in. And I was shooting in there. And I finished and I saw a hearse drive up and park in the, b- the back side of the Capitol by the Supreme Court. And then all of a sudden I looked over and there's just a sea of Capitol Hill police officers in black dress uniforms. And I was like, what? I just hadn't been. And my producer said, oh, he's lying in state in the rotunda now. William, what mm. I can't remember his name. I don't want to do that and be Officer William uh, F. Evans. William F. Evans. Yeah, and the, mm-hmm. the, if you if you can stomach this sort of thing, watch the video um, from the funeral and just see his wife and his little girl. It's just, oh, it's absolutely mm. heartbreaking. Really, 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 really horrible. And I sent you guys a photo of it. And what was really surprising to me is that there was a a riser where you put cameras on, tripods and everything. There was two cameras on it. I mean, risers usually are packed full of people. There was two cameras on it. I didn't see anyone tweeting about it. I didn't hear much about it. There wasn't anyone ringing the place. There was lots of uh, Capitol Hill police. And, you know, somebody said this to me, and I have to say it because it's horrible, but, you know, maybe they don't listen to this. I don't think they do. And I saw it on Twitter, too. And it was the joke when the driver, when I heard the driver was shot, I knew he was black. That's what everyone said. Did you see this joke on, on Twitter?
3: Mm-hmm. I, I,
2: look, no. you'll find it everywhere. Oh, I, I, mm-hmm. like it must've been a black guy because he got killed. Right. And I see all Jeez. these Capitol Hill police officers out there in, in their uniforms. And it's like this, one of their guys died. And the, you know, it is a very, very multiracial group of people too. And, I'm walking by these people on the way out before the casket comes down, and I didn't see that and left pretty quickly. And I see this multiracial group of people. And I'm thinking to myself, like, literally, you just maligned all of these people. And you said, well, of course, these guys shot the guy. He's black. It's like, no, one of them died. And that's what you're saying? You're actually accusing them of being, like, motivated by racism when... A person who's actually on record being a racist killed a person for that reason, and no one is even watching this or covering it or paying attention to it. You know. And by the way, one final thing on this, which is really kind of related, but you guys probably don't know because it, it it happened while we were recording, is that we're waiting to see what happens in the Derek Chauvin trial. We're going to see what happens with this woman, and there's going to be bang for blood for these cops. The Capitol police officer who shot the woman in the Capitol, uh, they said tonight that they're not going to press charges against that person, that police officer. And that very well might be the right decision. And it strikes me that it probably is. I don't know too much about it, so I can't really say. But that will get zero attention. That will get zero yep. anger. Be like, cops just very blithely using their weapons when and killing somebody who didn't, was not armed. And it's not going to be charged. But nobody gives a shit about that. So, you Mm. know, who knows? We'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We also
0: have a new report about uh, January 6th that's worth taking a look at, which confirms what we've talked about on the podcast before, back when people were insisting that the only reason the January 6th thing got so bad is because, you know, there was white or was able to get so bad is because the cops were unwilling to shoot white people and do bad things Mm -hmm. to them. Well, it turns out that it was just. Like precisely the kind of bureaucratic debacle you would have suspected, Mm -hmm. that people knew that (laughs) there were persistent threats, that they knew they had intelligence that suggested, hey, you know, whereas in a number of other cases, like the animosity of this angry mob had been directed at counter demonstrators, we're not expecting that dynamic to be the case this time around. We should probably prepare accordingly. Also, we don't want you to use like your most- severe tactics to kind of resist this particular crowd, like you need to be restrained. They tied their hands, like tied their own hands. And as a result, it amplified the failure of that day. And we are fortunate that things weren't worse. Mm -hmm. But that's, you know, bureaucratic nightmare and not active racism. In fact, probably the opposite, A, a bureaucratic nightmare that was in part induced because of the climate that has existed in this country with respect to like officers being particularly restrained in certain circumstances, probably to their detriment, which I think contributed to the Jacob Blake situation almost certainly and probably very likely constitu- contributed to the bad outcome in the Dante Wright situation as well. Like there, are, there are elements of that that make me wonder if you know the way officers were approaching the situation wasn't profoundly impacted by just the general climate of concern um, around them doing their jobs in a more deliberate way, which is not to same that they're rougher and nastier, but I don't I know. I should say something so. that
2: complicates what I said before, because uh, you just reminded me mm, of it. Do it. And I said, you know, this yeah. doesn't, people won't care about this. They won't. Um, but I should say, and it does complicate m- my point, and maybe weaken it quite a bit, is that the officer in the Jacob Blake situation was also not charged. Mm-hmm. And uh, nobody noticed. I didn't see really anything about it. Yeah, actually, I saw that this week. Really, yeah. no one paid attention to. Yeah. It. Well, that
0: that that situation is a. Is it's also a complicated been one. A little less a little le- animated. Yeah, and then when way. the knife yeah. was
2: involved in the rape and all that stuff, that people I think kind of peeled off a little bit from that one. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, well we've been
1: we've this is I this mean is certainly big, big time but extended. Episode. Are we trying to set a record here? Or what's we've what's done going some
0: on extra there? innings? Yeah. Well, you know what? This is fun. I enjoy enjoy talking to you,
2: gentlemen. See, there, it's, there you it's go. Always fun. Um, always fun. Yeah. The one I didn't have a drink in. <laughs> it's got to be eight hours. Dude, you didn't have a no, drink this whole I'm time? Like, no, it's like, crazy. It's crazy. You're well, you, so know when, <laughs> you know when
0: you might have a drink? I should say this at the very end of the podcast, because if you made it this far, is a very yeah. high likelihood that you will care about this. Um, we're taking our talents to South Beach. And it looks like we will be in Miami for a live fifth column event mm-hmm. um, towards the, actually the first week of June. Looking like it, yeah. Um, and the details are still coming together. The location is as of yet undefined. If you know of a venue in, in Miami that you would recommend, let us know. Ticket prices will be astronomically high, oh, yeah. um, so although they high. will be, be free Got for it. our top tier patrons. Um, and uh, we hope you will get your ass vaccinated. Or not, we whatever. We just come care. give us COVID. <laughs> We're um, all some vaccinated. Of us are so, vaccinated. Yeah. Whatever. Actually, I'm well, not. Well, you've already had it He's God. God. Wow. Literally, my whole family is filled with antibodies. Yeah, you're, you're so fine. You're fine. I'm probably in that first wave. Although I don't have any. i have keep. I've gotten all the tests, even the T cell. And tests, by the way, on the ticket it, prices, so. sad.
2: Just never complain about them because my daughter wants. To, my my <laughs> daughter wants to go to this Simone Biles, uh, gymnastics uh-huh. thing that they're having at the Barclays yeah, Center. Yeah. How much? How much? And if I want to go with Joanna. It's gonna and then add the fees to it. It's gonna cost me about six hundred and fifty dollars. No, it's oh two hundred dollars. a ticket. No, it's
0: not two
3: hundred dollars wow. a ticket.
0: Yeah, wow. Isn't Simone like thirty now? She can't. She got of like time.
3: She
2: can't do nothing. Three foot eight. She's I don't know. Two, she looks like two she's two seven. One
3: <laughs> two hundred dollars. What is
2: she gonna do? I, like, better, she, there better be some like fire. She's gonna come do shots. I guess dwarves. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, what the fuck? And then and then you can go in there and you're gonna buy Smoking. food and stuff. So we're talking like almost a brand yeah, yeah. and
0: a t shirt and a t shirt. No. I can't do that. I can't um, afford
2: that yeah no.
0: so that so stay tuned for additional details on that are taking our talents to south beach this is how it goes i don't even really like south beach but you know what we I'm don't have like to go to south night. beach so
2: we can go to like westwood well, I mean, we'll or something. someplace in
0: miami or yeah. go to, uh, we'll see Caiocho with the cubans yeah make some recommendations yeah. people tell us Let's
1: well, we'll be around cubans moynihan needs it fresh cut. oh that's all by yeah
2: by the way <laughs> i want to do this you know what we should do there in Uh-oh. um little havana Oh, yeah. Joe. Uh there is a Bay of Pigs museum <laughs> in somebody's house. Maybe oh, we should do it there. Oh, <laughs> yes.
3: Oh, yes. It's like literally in a house
2: huh. and it's the Bay of Pigs. Just bring well, Glenn down not, and like and, not, and, lay by, lay by off, the way, it. it's pro Bay of Pigs. Just in case you were wondering. <laughs> I don't think you were wondering, but in case you were pro <laughs> Bay of not... Pigs. Fuck John That's... F Kennedy. He abandoned us. Yeah, awesome. So, that yeah, is awesome. so do, we'll do it for the Cubans. <laughs> and we'll do it. I, it'll, be, we'll, it'll be decked out, and the stage will have just be full of Cuban flags. That's it. Yeah. Only Cuban flags. So, bye.
4: Bye.
1: Bye. We, 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 we know of new methods of attack.
3: The Trojan horse, The fifth column.